1: What a world. What a life. What a day. Saturday, April 16, 2022. Happy Passover. Happy Easter, too. We have a special Passover show. Rabbi Raymond Zwerin is Rabbi Emeritus at Temple Sinai. He started that show, and he did it many decades ago. He built something that is great, and he has a lot of wisdom, which he shares with us. I am so grateful. I want to get right to it. But I want to tell you, you will hear his 85th birthday speech that so impressed me after you hear that interview with Ray Warren, And then Dave Gunders, he enters the picture with his song, Good to Believe, our discussion of a brisket, bake-off, taste test, Second night Passover, my house, Bradley Stern is the judge. Anyway, you will hear about that, followed by Jeff Cass, because sadly, around this time of the year, Columbine, that sad anniversary, April 20, 1999, my buddy, a man who has blessed our Passover Seder, Jeffrey Cass. Great reporter for the Rocky Mountain News and others. Now he's a private investigator. He wrote the book about Columbine. There are lessons for today, as you will hear on this Passover special. Please enjoy, starting with Rabbi Ray Swearing. Gosh. pllc.com.
0: Now back to The Fred Silverman Show.
1: Okay, here we go. What a thrill this is for me, our special Passover podcast. Rabbi Raymond Zwerin is a Denver legend. He's been here for so many decades. He's accomplished so much. He's an author. He's the senior rabbi, the founding rabbi at Temple Sinai, Uh, A wonderful synagogue in southeast Denver. Rabbi Swarn. thanks a lot for doing this podcast. A
3: pleasure. It's good to be here, Craig.
1: Have you ever done a podcast before? Uh, No, this is my my maiden voyage. Wow. And uh, it's a new way of communication and recording things because... Uh, in the Jewish religion there's so much history involved and say what you will about podcasts but it makes a permanent record of how you and I were feeling the afternoon of April 14 2022 on the precipice of another Passover and uh, it captures a moment in time
3: yeah it's interesting Uh, I'll look forward to it we'll see what happens
1: Well, it's going to happen, and uh, let me ask you about yourself. If I could introduce you to the crowd, you've been here a long time, but I think you grew up somewhere else. Tell everybody about your upbringing.
3: Well, I I was born in Cincinnati and uh, moved to uh, Los Angeles at an early age, and uh, basically did all my schooling in Los Angeles, uh, Culver City, California. Famous for MGM Studios and now Sony. Um, Went to UCLA and uh, started my uh, rabbinic studies at uh, HUC in Los Angeles. Found, was one of the founding students of that school. And, um, uh, And then finished up my rabbinic studies back in Cincinnati. So it was sort of like a big circle.
1: Did you have rabbis in your family? No, none. When did it occur to you to be a rabbi? Well,
3: um, it, it occurred to me, um, strangely enough, when we first moved to Culver City uh, in the 40s, um, there were no synagogues. And uh, so my parents, there were a number of Jewish families. So my parents gathered together about 15 families in the neighborhood and uh, we uh, hired a a rabbi uh, who came out and uh, started the congregation with us, and uh, most of the services were held in our living room uh, for about, uh, I don't know, six months or so. And then the rabbi realized that Beverly Hills was a probably a more fertile ground than Culver City at the time, and so he moved to, Culver, to Beverly Hills. So my parents uh, and their friends started another congregation in our living room and uh, brought in another rabbi who, after about six months to a year or so, w- went to Brentwood and f- founded another congregation there. Uh, and then uh, a third rabbi did the same thing. And by that time, I guess they got smart. So um, they uh, founded another synagogue and wrote in the bylaws that it can't move out of uh, Culver City. And uh, sure enough, that one stuck. Uh, so I, I kind of grew up seeing my father conducting services because he had no choice. And uh, by the time I was in high school... Uh, I was also being asked to conduct services and, and the like. and uh, But I was going to be an engineer. I was determined to be an engineer. I was uh, gonna, I, So I, I, uh, I turned down a scholarship to, to uh, CIT, California Institute of Technology, fortunately, uh, and went to UCLA instead. UCLA in those days, uh, the tuition was uh, the outrageous sum of $50 a semester. So my first semester, I was I, I was in uh, an engineering student, taking all the requisite courses, calculus and physics, and I had no passion for them. I mean, I realized that you know I could do them, but I had no passion for it. And I I went to school every day with a high school friend who lived a block away, and one one of us would drive each day, and he was a certifiable genius, um, a, a mathematical genius, and. 11th grade, he sort of intuited calculus and then figured out how to do problems in calculus. So uh, he he was an engineer. Uh, so one day I'm sitting on the lawn at, at UCLA next to Kirchhoff Hall, the student union there, and uh, I asked him a question about the Korean War, which sort of dates me a bit. Um, and, and he looked at me, and he reached down, he pulled out his slide rule and he moved the slipstick on the slide rule and then the little glass thing with the little uh, line in it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he looked up at me and said, What? And I said, You know, Jack, I'll be back in a minute. And I went to the administration office and changed my major to uh, psychology, history, and philosophy. So, uh, and shortly thereafter... That
1: doesn't sound like you were bent
3: on being a rabbi right then. <laughs> it didn't sound like I was bent on being an engineer, that's right. for sure.
1: you were running from that.
3: That And, and about um, about six months later, uh, same lawn, a uh, friend of mine, uh, also a high school uh, student, a friend of mine, uh, sees me on the lawn. He stops by to say hello. I said, where are you going? He said... I'm going to HUC. I said, HUC, HUC, there's no HUC here. It's in Cincinnati or in New York. He said, no, they're just starting a new branch here. Just They just started it two weeks ago.
1: And what does HUC stand for? Uh, HUC, Hebrew
3: Union College. Okay. It's the seminary for reform rabbis. So, uh, so I said, sounds interesting. He said, You've been doing rabbi stuff for the last five years. Come on with me.
1: So I said, you know what? I think I will. Now let's back up a little bit about your dad. What was his name? Irv. You said Irv had no choice but to lead the service. Of course he had a choice. He could have been out golfing. He could have been at the beach. (laughs) No, my my dad took things
3: seriously. If he was going to start a congregation, he'd be responsible for what he did. He never, he never pushed it on to somebody else. If he said yes, he'd do it.
1: And that was that was just him. The other thing that came to mind, and I know abyssal about you, that you're a big baseball fan. And as you described Culver City, it seemed like maybe a single-A club. And if you do get there, you go up to double-A or maybe all the way to Beverly Hills. So it's a farm system when it comes to being a rabbi. It still kind of is, right?
3: Uh, Well, it—, it 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 used to be uh, you used to have to work your way out of the first three or four years of uh, of one congregation in order to get your own single congregation, but uh, I think things have loosened up a little bit since then. And so, you know, if if you're if you're good and you're liked by a congregation, then you you get hired.
1: All right, you use the magic word good. Thank you so much, and I don't want to give away your Facebook eighty fifth birthday speech. Thanks for giving us permission to play it. But I like that word good. And I know you do as well. And our troubadour uh, has a song this week called Good to Believe. Perfect for Passover. And I want to skip ahead and tell everybody that you ended up getting your degree in Cincinnati. Is that right? And, And then you came to Denver. And just like your dad did, You and a bunch of great people put together this synagogue in Southeast Denver that has thrived and prospered, and it's an amazing success. And now you are how old? You give it away on this speech we're going to play, too. Sounds like
3: 85 to
1: me. Right. And it's amazing how sharp you are because the last time I saw you was at Purim, and my gosh, were you entertaining. As the narrator with all the movements, that's on Facebook too. But you are not slowing down. How do you do it?
3: I, you know, you you sleep and you get up and you and you move. I got a few things that I've been doing lately, and uh, I I sort of keep busy.
1: Right, you're doing your first ever podcast. You have new things going on, but. I just wanted to get your thoughts because so much is going on right now that my audience cares about modern times and I don't think they're normal. I have two boys and as they grew up, I'd say, you can reassure them, well, if this happens, then that will happen. But lately things don't seem normal. And uh, my kids are older, thank God, but the pandemic didn't seem normal. Putin's war is the biggest crisis of my lifetime. President Biden just said it's genocide. And I grew up with parents who lived through World War II. You did too. We grew up with the mantra, never again, run with it. What's going on, Rabbi? We need your wisdom.
3: The question is, what's normal? Uh, Normalcy is what every generation defines it as. Uh, what was normal in, in uh, the 1940s, uh, 50s when I was a kid? Um, normal was uh, having five cents and feeling rich. Uh, normal was uh, eating a three-course meal for less than a buck. Um, normal was uh, having a job when you were 11 years old because your parents needed you to have a job at 11 years old. So it was certainly normal for me to sell newspapers on a street corner um, when I was 11, standing in the middle of a busy street. I mean, can you imagine letting your kid do that today? I mean, you'd be arrested for child abuse. So for now, that's abnormal. But for then, yeah, the kid's working for a living, and he's making 40, 50 cents an hour. Uh, because he gets a couple of pennies, tips, and he's going to bring home $4 today. Are you kidding? We need that money because the rent's doing a week. And, and he's
1: learning people skills.
3: And he's learning people skills. Right. And, you know, and, and on Sunday, you stayed there in front of a store for 16 hours selling the Sunday Los Angeles Times because you made $0.07 cents a paper. And so you sold the paper. And that was what you did.
1: Wow. Yes. And All that being said, I would think that things progress. Things- and, and yet now we're seeing images out of World War II, images of people on trains getting bombed out, little children getting terrorized. We hear reports of rape. Again, the call of genocide. Um,
3: always, that, always, that, you always have to remember that when a, uh, a tyrant calls a name to someone else, it's because that's what they do. So when they call the Ukrainians Nazis, it's the Russians who now act like Nazis. They're the ones that are bombing, and they're the ones that are, in fact, committing genocide by not letting people escape from cities. Uh, they're trying to wipe out co- entire communities. So they are really acting the role of the Nazis in this case, and uh, and, and you know, I, I to a certain extent, I blame the free world from not learning the lesson from World War II. When somebody threatens your life, you don't sit back and say it's not going to happen or we'll react to it. That's when you get proactive and you rise up and you do it first. We should have learned that from the Israelis in the Six-Day War. Had they allowed the, Russian, to the uh, Egyptians to take Russian airplanes into the sky and start bombing Israeli cities, party would have been over. But instead, the Israelis said, that's what you intend to do, so we'll do it
1: first. So you believe that uh, maybe America and the free world has been too timid?
3: Look. NATO has 30 nations, and those 30 nations have 1,700, maybe 1,800 uh, really good airplanes, uh, warplanes. Um, Ukraine is a free country until February 24th when Russia enters. And Putin, the first thing he says is, we've got the bomb, don't, don't interfere with what we're doing. That's when NATO should have sent two or 300 airplanes over Ukrainian airspace and said, hey, you guys want to come up and play a little? That's fine. But we're here and we're going to be here every day, all day. You want to send up an airplane? That's fine. We'll all kiss and make well. But you drop something on a civilian target and we'll blow you out of the sky.
1: Wow. And then... And that
3: would have been the end of the game. You just called his bluff. Who's going to drop a bomb on
1: and if you don't call his bluff, then you have to give in to that every time, right? All the time.
3: You've got now two and a half months worth of bombing civilians because you didn't call his bluff. I mean. But what if it's not a bluff? Who's he gonna who, Who's he gonna send that bomb to? There are 30 nations. Which one does he drop it on? Those are all NATO planes. So who's he gonna?
1: If you are saying that. They are the Nazis, and I agree, and it's kind of weird to think that they would do it over national origin, but if you look at the laws, people are protected by race, national origin. It's not the first time this happened in history, right? where just because you're part of a nation, you pay the price regardless of your race, and uh, so given his genocide, and he's Masuga, it's like Hitler with nukes, right. so— what if he's Meshuggah and he throws the nukes into 30 different directions?
3: You know, if that's the way the planet ends, that's the way the planet ends. I think after after two moments of consideration, uh, you know, we did have the agreement, the MAD agreement, mutually agreed at mm-hmm. destruction, kind of a law that said if you drop the first right. bomb, this is the end of the world as we know it. Um, and it uh, becomes sort of TS Eliot uh, how this is the way the world ends not with a bang but a whimper I know after the bang comes the whimper
1: and once we realize that 30 are on the way we got to throw 300 back just to teach those people who had no choice one of us all Vlad Putin, it gets so complex
3: yeah but you can't allow you can't allow tyrants to exact their control over other other peoples it's not it's not it's not possible to live under that system.
1: I agree. It's like Will Smith would have just kept pummeling Chris Rock. At some point somebody would have pulled him off and said, Hey, Enough. you can't do this. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's gotta pull Putin off. Right. And uh yeah. You know, you were here and I was uh I don't know, either at Hill Junior High or GW, I was vaguely aware they were dedicating a park called Bobby R out at uh, were uh, Havana meets Hamden near Kennedy Golf Course yeah. near Sam's number three and I bet you remember it pretty darn well because you were involved, right? Yeah,
3: Havana and uh, and Yale. Uh, Yale, Parker, where Yale and Parker are. Yes. Um, and uh, it's a 22-acre piece of land uh, and uh, I uh, essentially got it dedicated to uh, to Bobby R. It was... Uh, nineteen sixty five, and uh we had just learned that the Jews in the Soviet Union were being terribly abused by uh by the uh well, it's it's a continuation of the abuse that Russia has heaped on its Jewish population since the days of Catherine the Great. Um who was incidentally neither a Catherine nor a Russian not that
1: great <laughs> nor great.
3: Right. <laughs> her her name was Sophia Frederica, and she was German, and she was a prostitute. Right. But that's okay. That's right. So she, she took all the Jews who lived in Russia, about 4 million at the time, and she uh, created 26 little communities in Belarus and in Ukraine mostly and uh, made the Jews live in those, those villages. Oh, she so,
1: created the Pale of Settlement?
3: She created the Pale of Settlement. Yeah, she did.
1: That wasn't so great. But for a while, could Jews survive, even thrive there?
3: uh, They thrived in spite of. But, uh, you know, essentially you had Cossacks who were from time to time running through villages and destroying communities whole and killing people and taking property and and burning uh, villages to the ground and the like. Uh, And, you know, the party kind of came to the end in the 1980s in the 1880s when uh, Alexander III came on the throne and he passed the notorious May laws, and uh, in which were the predecessors to Nazi Nuremberg laws, which triple-taxed the Jews, um, kept no civil rights, no they couldn't work in certain uh, fields, they couldn't go to the university, they couldn't study their religion, they couldn't practice, synagogues were destroyed. It was the same old story. And... Um, and so uh, two million Jews left Russia Uh, you know a million and a half came here and a half a million went to other parts of the world and a whole bunch of them went to uh, Israel as well Uh, and that kind of passed on that mindset kind of passed on into the Stalin age Uh, Stalin also killed Jewish intellectuals by the hands full in the dozens even after the Second World War. And then uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev were also tyrants and uh, Andropov and and uh, all of the 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 leaders of the Russian uh, government uh, basically persecuted the Jews in the in the 40s the 50s and especially in the 60s. So um, a friend of mine and I, Lil Hoffman, and I uh, founded a Committee of Concern for Soviet Jewry. And our goal was to point out how terrible things were for Jews in the Soviet Union. And one day we got to thinking we need some sort of a, something in this community that is sort of a Holocaust uh, memorial, but it also tells people about what's going on in the Soviet Union. And it occurred to us that the great terror of the Soviet Union during the war was Babi Yar, or in Ukrainian, Babinyar. And uh, Yevtushenko, the great Russian poet at the time, had just written a a tremendous poem called Babi Yar, and published it in Russian, it was translated into English. And we had a number of people, especially a rabbi in Denver, uh, Sam Edelman, of blessed memory, who went to Russia and came back and told the story to the Jewish community here about how Jews are, again, once more, no schooling, no, no uh, um, uh, professions of some sort. Uh, Jewish doctors can't uh, take care of non-Jewish patients and lawyers can't take care of non-Jewish customers and clients, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, big quotas on this and big quotas on that and double taxation and kicked out of their jobs and synagogues closed, no practice of the religion, can't teach your kids Hebrew, terrible stuff. Uh, And Jews losing jobs, so they were being impoverished. Uh, So we started this committee and then uh, looked around and saw this empty land with a ravine in it, because the ravine in in the Ukraine, in Babi Yar, contained the bodies of 33,000 Jews who were slaughtered in two days by the Nazis and their Ukrainian sympathizers. And then over the course of the next year or so, another hundred and some thousand Jews and Romas and Ukrainians were also added to the pit. and uh,
1: Lined up on the side of the ravine, shot sho- to death, shot shoved dead. into the human grave
3: right some of them still kicking when the dirt came over their faces um and uh you know the uh, we actually have uh film and newsreels of what took place during those days uh by the nazis shot by the nazis and and so um i went to see governor love at the time john love and um bill mcnichols was the mayor and uh Both of them agreed that we needed a Holocaust Memorial and both agreed that this piece of land in Denver would serve that purpose. And uh, within a few months, uh, we had the park dedicated to Bobby Yar. And uh, then over the course of... Ellie Wiesel came to town and dedicated the park.
1: Amazing man. Yeah, amazing
3: man. And uh, a, a few years later... Uh, Helen Ginsburg and Alan Gass and a committee of Jews and non-Jews got together and they created plans for developing the park. And uh, over the course of the next ten years, the park has been developed. It's a beautiful place to visit. I had the honor of writing all of the um, all of the memorial uh, features in the park, and uh, it's it's just a, it's not it's not a playground. It's, um, it's built in the form of a Star of David, which you can see from the sky if you fly over an airplane. And it has three major memorial features uh, with writings on them. And um, it's a meditative park and a contemplative park. And this is now getting to be the time of year to go see it and
1: walk through it. And all summer long, it's just gorgeous. I'm feeling it in the air. I bet you are, too. of Pesach, it approaches, and the energy with which my parents, who really didn't keep kosher all year long, but then they suddenly did for eight days on Passover. That was their thing. And once at a baseball practice, I think some kid had some cereal, and I ate it. I said, oi, what did I do? My mother and I used to debate sunflower seeds. Are they Pesach?
3: If you if you eat them on Pesach, they are.
1: All right. So I like that kind of rabbinical <laughs> ruling, but we took it seriously. But for you, my God, you're over 85 now? Yeah. Do you still get the excitement, air er, Pesach, the feeling? You.
3: Well, now, of course, we have grandchildren, so mm-hmm. it's a totally different ballgame. Uh, now, instead of being the learner, I'm sort of the teacher, and— uh, and my uh, my son is now starting to conduct part of the Seder, which is great. And it's no longer held at our house, uh, now that we live in a condominium and now it's held in you know, in our kids' houses. And uh, it's 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 sweet. It's very nice.
1: Right. So that that's wonderful. I, I remember being on fourteen thirty seven Equipment with my grandpa Harry leading it. First time I ever got shaker when you drank too much wine. And uh, yeah, now that you get to live it through uh, your grandkids, but what about the feeling? You know, the feeling in uh, raised Warren, if I can be so personal. I mean, is this and all the great holidays to me make me reflective? I think about my family, and is it a chance to to take stock of somebody's life, kind of a spring cleaning?
3: Well, you know, there are nine holidays, major holidays during the Jewish year, so it gives you a chance nine times at least to think about your own identity and what you're doing and how you're doing it. And uh, I, 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 I'm a, I'm an anti-fundamentalist. Um, I, I, I believe fundamentalism is really bad. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, it's the the worst thing that happens in life is for people to be so fundamental that they can't see two sides of any issue, and uh, uh, and it, it, it's not that I would consider myself to be a flaming liberal because that I'm not, but um, I like to be able to to debate and to think about a different way of thinking about, and so what I like about uh, Passover or Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, for that matter, is you get a chance to think about what the alternatives were. What was the alternative to 10 plagues? Could Moses have stood there and argued with Pharaoh for a month or two or three or five or 10? Would it have made a difference? Could he have talked him into letting the people go? And then could somebody have talked the South into freeing the blacks? Could somebody have talked... Uh, Mexico, out of uh, coming in and trying to take back Texas. Uh, could, can we really talk ourselves out of somebody who has already got a mindset and a way of life that is not going to listen to the other side of things? Uh, and so could I have talked myself out of becoming a rabbi? Could you have talked yourself out of becoming a lawyer? And what would your alternatives have been? Would I have been happy being an engineer? No, I don't think so. Would you be happy being a surgeon? I don't know. I don't no, think so.
1: And neither would the patient. <laughs> In other words, you try to uh, you try to argue for their health. I just I don't have those <laughs> fine touch movements. I'm more of a big picture guy. But uh, no, I like arguing. That's what I love about Judaism. That's what I tell my kids. Israel wrestle with God, right? That's the beauty of our religion, and you do it magnificently, yet you've dedicated your life to Judaism and being a Jewish leader. Is there a contradiction? When I say the word piety, is that like fundamentalism? No, pi-
3: piety is one thing, uh, and, um, <clears throat> and and actually uh, being— um, uh, very strict in your observance, that, that's okay too. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Uh, but being so strict in your observance and so pietistic that you look upon anyone who isn't exactly like you as being lesser or beneath or different uh, to the extent that they're not part of your group, that, that's not okay. That's exclusionist. That's already a form of bigotry in and of its own self, uh, because what is bigotry except non-acceptance of anyone who isn't like you? And we live in too big a world uh, to be bigoted uh, and to and to have hatreds that uh, that that lead to to terrible consequences.
1: Is that humankind's biggest downfall, bigotry?
3: Well, I think it's certainly right up there mm-hmm. uh, because. What else causes war except greed and, and hatred? What else, what else makes people want to go and kill people?
1: A, a perception that you've been uh, insulting, going back to Purim, what Haman felt like Mordecai didn't give him sufficient respect. You have narcissists to uh, require tribute all the time.
3: What happens if Haman was a liberal? He would have gone home and said, you know, the guy's a jerk. He's supposed to bow to me, and he didn't bow mm-hmm. to me. Okay, the heck with it. Uh, you know, m- maybe, uh, maybe I'll, 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 I'll ignore him. I'll avoid him next time.
1: And, and the, there's no story. I've always tried to figure out your politics. Well, not always. It's not like I've been obsessed with it. But <laughs> like me, I think you're a contradiction. I don't think you're easily labeled a liberal or a conservative. Would you agree?
3: I agree. I would agree.
1: How do you define yourself? Uh, I'm sort of a liberal
3: conservative. I'm a conservative liberal.
1: Uh, well, tell us in your long lifetime who you admire uh, as an American politician.
3: As an American politician,
1: how about Scoop Jackson, who came to the rescue? Scoop Jackson, of, uh, Scoop Russian Jackson,
3: Jew. certainly a hero. And and uh, you know, it's it's not that you admire the totality of someone. Because there are things in politicians, by, by dint of the fact that they're politicians, that they have no choice, but to have negative sides to them or to do things that you don't agree with. But I, I certainly admire Lyndon Johnson for the positive things that he did with the great society. Um, I, uh, I, I admire politicians who look out for the choice that others need to make for their own benefit. I find it appalling that uh, men would tell women what to do with their bodies. I find it absolutely appalling. What, what right do we have to tell women what to do with their bodies? I wouldn't exactly love it if a woman told me what to do with my body. So,
1: Well, I am a lawyer. So they would say you would tell a woman you cannot take your hands and wrap them around a little girl's neck and choke her to death. And then they would say, well, that's what you're doing to a little girl fetus inside of you. Well, uh, that
3: That's a theological problem. And that has nothing to do with what we think. Uh, that's just not our— that's it's, just it's a not bit of a our...
1: biological problem because it's growing inside of another person. Well, I mean, how does the Jewish religion and, uh, approach the concept of a fetus? Uh,
3: the fetus—first of all, the fetus is a parasite. It lives off of the body. So therefore, by definition, it's a parasite. And it's a parasite with a limited time. That is, it self-ejects after a certain period of time. Or it self-ejects if something goes wrong, too. So um, a, a Jewish tradition would say that if a fetus threatens a woman's health, it is treated as a pursuer. And according to Jewish law, if someone comes to kill you, you don't turn the other cheek. You rise up and kill them first. Uh, That you protect yourself. That your life is sacred. And that your life is life. The fetus's life is not life until the head is born. And it's only after the head is born that it is a person. Not before, not one second before the head is born is the fetus a person.
1: Fast kinding. And isn't there a biblical story about an accident where a woman lost her baby and it was decided it was a money damages case as well, opposed to a well, uh, death two, penalty?
3: Two men are struggling in uh, Exodus 21. Two men are struggling and one uh, hits the other's wife who is pregnant and she miscarries. And uh, uh, it, it is an eye for an eye is interpreted as uh, money To pay for damages
1: so it's not nothing it's something but But it's it's not not. the same as a human and it's to me it's when you're a human being um anyway i don't want to diverge on that but god knows religion gets into that mess especially with catholicism our friends there and the politics it has led to and the turmoil that's going to be but i want to get back to ukraine and uh the attack that we're witnessing every day on our televisions—do you turn away or do you watch? Or uh,
3: I, I, watch because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm interested in finding out what, uh, what, what strength of character the Ukrainians are showing. Uh, it, not so much the soldiers, because we're not seeing the war. We're not really privy to the action of the war. But you look at the old women who have a chance to leave, and they're not leaving. This is our home, and we are staying here. They could go. Four million have already gone. But here are old women who are, and I say old, and they're probably in their 60s and 70s. And some of them are in their 80s, but... They're, they're standing on a street corner and they're looking at the disaster among them, the houses that have been bombed to smithereens, bodies lying in the street, one woman who finds her own son laying in the street. Are, are you leaving now because of the terror that is happening? No, we're staying. We're staying right here.
1: Maybe because Bobby R and uh, the stories I heard about the Polish lack of resistance to turning over Jews. I had a bad feeling. I thought Ukrainians, they had a lot of anti-Semitism. same with the Poles. But now I'm reevaluating. Poland has stepped up big time in this humanitarian crisis. And the Ukrainian people's character and the fact that they elected a Jewish guy, Zelensky, and we will get to him, but did I miscalculate? Did you miscalculate? Or was I just misinformed?
3: Uh, People's learn. I mean, the Germans have learned. They've changed. Uh, Are are there still kind of Nazis in Germany? There's a right wing, yes. Are there still Nazi simps in Ukraine and in Russia? Of course. Uh, In probably every country in the world is anti-Semitism, the international virus that never goes away, that has no vaccine for it. So, yeah, there's always going to be anti-Semites and anti-Semitism. But here the Ukrainians... Have have shown that they can elect not only a prime minister, they can elect a president right. too. Two you guys, two Jews who are running the country. I mean, wow! Think about that. Fifty years ago, uh, uh-uh. uh, not going to happen. So, uh, people can change, and and countries can move on. Ukraine was uh, a, a communist country until you know nineteen uh, until twenty fourteen. Uh, And suddenly, from out of nowhere, it says, you know what? We don't like that way of life. Let's try democracy. And they kick out the communist-placed ruler, and they elect Zelensky, and suddenly, from out of nowhere, you got a democracy. And they're ready to stand up and die for their country. Yes. They wouldn't have done that under the communist rule. They would have just said, okay, you guys come in take
1: over. But it's, it's like Hamilton. I mean, they are birthing a country and they sort of got their freedom in ninety-one, but Putin wouldn't let them go. He had his own puppet in there, Putin's puppet, man affords man. Let's not forget about that. Is it okay if we go there? because I, I see connections all over the place. Tyranny versus freedom. Passover 2022. Tyrants taking the stage all over the world. Putin, she. Le Pen in France, and Donald Trump in America. You go with it, Rabbi.
3: I think he just said it. Those are the tyrants of today. There will be other tyrants in the future. We have to learn the lessons today. We have to learn the lesson from Passover. We have to learn the lessons from the Second World War. We have to learn the lessons from Vietnam and Korea. There are battles not to fight, but there are battles that have to be fought for the good and welfare of of your, of your our country and for the good and welfare of the world in general.
1: I worry for the podcasters in Ukraine because they're getting identified, this and that. Could you ever see something like that happening in America? I mean, we're on the bridge of a, mer- a midterm where it's expected the Republicans will win. Maybe it's setting the stage for a second Trump term. I mean, will we... With the media being the enemy of the people, will people still broadcast? Look at how people have fled Russia. I just worry what? Are, give me some reassurance, Rabbi.
3: Uh, tyrants don't like freedoms, right? And so tyrants, the first thing they do is take away certain civil liberties, and then they take the freedom of speech away. and then they arrest the dissidents. Uh, and then they kill the the intellectuals and the radicals, uh, and then they propagandize uh, hatred for anybody else who could possibly rise up to confront them, to face off against them. Uh, that's basically the 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 script. It's already been written, and we've seen it, uh, and it's played out over and over again but throughout history. We've
1: never seen it play out in America. Could that happen here?
3: I'm not so sure. We haven't seen it play out in America. We wow. did have a civil war. Right. And that civil war came close to dividing the country in half. True. Uh, it was It was not a, you know, we, we, we were fortunate enough to have the right leader at the right time because had it not been for Abe Lincoln, uh, we may never have healed that wound. And uh, we, we still bear some scars, but at, at least we're sort of one country. Uh, and things will change here
1: too. Lincoln was a lawyer. He liked to read, and I think his favorite book was the Bible, The Bible, yeah, yeah. What lessons are in the Bible for what's going on right now? Well, um, in the Bible. I'm not— I I mean, around Passover. Let me just start here with a challenging question. It's really the Passover story. But, but is that a true story? Did Moses really exist?
3: Does it matter? Yes. Uh, okay, I'll say he did. Uh, but, you know, go prove it. Um, did It's
4: impossible to
1: prove.
3: Did, did the pharaoh of the Exodus really exist? Can we put our finger on who it was? Supposedly uh the the one who enslaved the Jewish people was Ramses the second, and supposedly the pharaoh who came after him, a man by the name of Mert Neptah, was the one who was the pharaoh of the Exodus. Um, you know, where do we go from there? What's really important is the story as metaphor for life in general.
1: And it's not just the Jews story, it's the basis for all the great it's, religions.
3: It's everybody's story. Everybody has a Passover. Everybody has to get out of some place to become something else. Uh, Listen, every person has to get out of childhood to become a person, an adult, a a, a real functioning human being in society. And there is a Passover story there. There is a, a crossing of the Red Sea somewhere in your life where one day you are a kid and the next day or the next month or within the year, you have an independence that, uh, that frees you. And now you get to choose, am I going to live this life without rules, without regulations? I'm free. I'm no longer at home. Uh, or am I going to take upon myself some of the rules and the values and the lessons that I learned from my household and adopt them so that I can live in a, 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 with a, a direction that's positive for me.
1: I think President Xi told Joe Biden that, hey, in the age of technology, freedom is too much. Democracy doesn't work. Let's face up to it. Things move too fast. People are too easily manipulated. They need a ruling class. Well, what's your counter to that? I mean, and does, does the Torah counter that as well?
3: Well, uh, which tyrant uh, do the people in the Bible follow? Every tyrant in the Bible is done away with, mm-hmm. every one of them. So whenever there's a tyrant, uh, he is overcome, he is undone, he is, uh, he is destroyed, uh, even if it's your own people. Uh, even King Ahab and Jezebel are overthrown and destroyed um, through their wickedness. Every king who comes on the scene, who doesn't do what the people need, he loses. He's killed. He's finished. Um, and uh, every every time the people go astray, something bad happens to them. So the moral of the story is, if if you can't live in accordance with um, a semblance of uh, dependency, with semblance of trust. If you can't create a society where people can trust each other to do the good thing and the right thing, then you can't live together. All of life is based on trust.
1: I'm worried about the Jewish people in Denver, in the world, You know, I've been part of so many Jewish men's events, but the politics have gotten so uh, partisan and difficult that I don't know that people want to come together. I don't know that I want to come together with Trump supporters. And uh, here I was, a guy who backed Mitt Romney, as you might recall. So what do we do about that?
3: I don't know. What can you do about people who don't want to listen to the other side, who don't want to accept the truth? What do you do with people who refuse to understand that what they profess to believe is uh, s- strange?
1: Okay, then let's just get to the big lie. And I don't like using that word, but I or that phrase, but I write it and I use the big B and the big L, aware that it's a Holocaust-like reference. But I saw it as that dangerous from the outset that Trump would deny. The election, you can beg off on this, but is that something that reasonable people can discuss or do we have to say, come on, cut the bullshit?
3: We have national norms, you know, and the national norms are what move us from one generation to the next. Those national norms are never more evident than the Gore-Bush election in which it's not quite sure that Bush won, but Gore didn't raise up an army of, uh, he could have done that he could right. have said, I don't, I, I don't believe in this thing. I'm not going to resign. I'm not going to declare you as the victor. I want to recount. I want to redo. I want this. I want that. And he could have prolonged this thing forever. But the norms of the country are the peaceful transfer of power, and that takes precedence over just about everything else. Yep. Yes, we want to make sure the elections are fair the elections are about as fair as elections can be when you've got 150 million people voting.
1: And then this January 6th situation, so sickening. And as a lawyer, I think it is essential for us to get to the bottom of it because it was organized. This attempt to take over the government was organized. And I think it's critical that people be held responsible. Do you?
3: absolutely absolutely and and I don't want to see them uh, have uh, soft uh, soft punishments either I think they really tried to undo not just the election they tried to undo democracy the democratic process in this country they tried to undo it by storming the 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 capital and keeping the electors from electing and that's not right that's Right. Not the way we do things
1: here. Right. but There are Colorado politicians who support this crap. Lauren Boebert, for example. And so if I know Colorado Jews who support Lauren Lauren Boebert financially, how am I supposed to party with those guys?
3: Find another group to party with.
1: Right. But then we have division. And then the Jewish people get divided, too.
3: I, I don't... I don't think we're divided in our religion. I think we might be divided in our politics often, but you know, religion, politics, um, times change and people change.
1: Here's what I worry about. And you and I have gone over this because I have supported some Republicans in my lifetime, I've been unaffiliated. And yet, in the end, I think my support of Mitt Romney over Barack Obama's second term was a mistake, just because I don't trust Republicans anymore because I've seen how they've thrown in with Donald Trump. And uh, is that correct analysis?
3: Hey, you know, I, I, had, I really don't like to get involved in political discussions, um, but. Uh, there's there's no way in the world you can justify continuing with, quote, the big lie. You cannot continue with it because the election was over a year and a half ago. And once it was over, the norms of the country are the peaceful transfer of power. Nothing overcomes that. That's, right. that's, the, that's the bottom line. Yes. There is no democracy if that doesn't
1: exist. And not all Republicans are bad, of course. But, but here's the thing. I was led to Romney, I think, through my support of Israel. And so now I'm worried that my support of Israel has too often led me to embrace people on the right. And have you seen that occur? And it, well, yeah. The, and, sure. and now is there a backlash against Israel? Should there be? And, and I, I've reevaluated Bibi Netanyahu, too have you
3: yes everybody has evaluated and re-evaluated just about everybody um uh, when someone's in power too long uh they they get a little bit crazy and uh they they start thinking that they deserve whatever they want to do and that's not good so and the change of of power in a country especially like israel is a small country uh, the change of, of of power and leadership can be wrenching um as Israel is now going through this power change you know am i going to stay in the government am i not going to stay in the government so you've got people in your power party who are dropping out because they don't agree with this and they want to join some other political party and uh, and and then now the government's in danger of falling in a new election and all that stuff but The issue is, if you can keep the processes of democracy moving smoothly, a country continues to function. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: Bibi lost the election, and he stood aside. He wasn't in there doing the Trump thing. I was cheated, I was this, I was... He was in power for a long time. He was the longest reigning prime minister of Israel in Israel's history. Longer than Ben-Gurion, longer than Rabin, longer than all of the rest. And yet he lost the election. I'm out. Goodbye. And, uh, and power was transferred. And what happened? What happened was Israel continues. It goes on. It continues to do its security stuff. It continues to do... Uh, its goodwill throughout the world. I mean, what other country has set up hospitals on the Ukrainian border to take care of Ukrainians as they're trying to escape from the battles and taking care of them and and fixing their wounds and mending their broken uh, legs and limbs and the like and delivering babies right there on the border and sending them on to wherever they want to go from there?
1: Yeah, but lucky here at Jewish News, Zelensky excoriates Israel.
3: Well, of course he would.
1: Why not? It's an easy target. But which side should a Denver Jew take?
3: A Denver Jew should take the side of what is right and Russia is wrong. It's it's And just,
1: Zelensky is right. No, he's not right in
3: everything he does. He's he's desperate. Zelensky is desperate. And that headline is also desperate.
1: Uh, they had, had nothing else to time. write. Well, uh, it's the Jewish news. Maybe they're trying to stir it up. but I think so. Um, you are an accomplished writer, author. I have your book here. I'd have you sign it, but you already have. Holy fire. You've written a, a beautiful fiction book. Gosh, you're accomplished, and... But the book I really want to talk to you about is uh, 40 Years of Wondering. Yes. All Your High Holidays Sermons. Just fantastic. And it occurred to me as a kid, wow, a rabbi, we're not supposed to work on Sabbath or the high holidays, but that's when they work their hardest, right? <laughs> I mean, it gets there. Yeah. Yeah, it, for it, sure. It, but you put your Kishkids into those speeches. How important are those high holiday speeches to a rabbi?
3: Uh when you're giving them, they're critical. Uh, they're the most important thing you can do f- that day uh, mm-hmm. because you've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort on them. Um, I, I always looked at at the, the sermons I wrote. I, I wrote sermons for only one person. I wrote sermons for me. Uh, I wrote them to answer questions that I had, that I raised, uh, and so writing a sermon was always an interesting task because it gave me a chance to think through the issue that I raised. And, uh, and I, enjoyed, I enjoyed the process. In many instances, what is
1: the process? How many rewrites?
3: I don't rewrite very much. Uh, I might, How
1: far ahead of time do you write it?
3: Um, high holiday sermons. And back in the day, I used to have to give five for the High Holidays, so that's five 25- to 45-minute sermons. Sometimes I'd speak a little long, but um, I I would try to write all my sermons in June and July uh, because I didn't want to have to do anything Um, I, I didn't want to have to worry about them in August and as the high holidays approached in September, because in September, that's when school started. That's when meetings started. That's when people died. That's when babies were born. That's when I really didn't have any free time. And, uh, you know, for most of my rabbinic career, I was also a publisher. Uh, and so I was publishing Jewish textbooks and I was also writing Jewish textbooks. And, and, uh, that was the time when that stuff was really reaching its height, and so I really didn't have any spare time during that period of time. And did
1: you write or type?
3: Uh, I wrote until 1984 when I got my first word computer. Yeah, oh, my first computer. word processor. Yeah, and I sat down with it the day it came in. I had a printer and I had the box of paper with the with the little uh, holes on the side and the sprockets in the printer. And uh, I I put this eight by eight inch floppy disk into the drive and uh, I turned on the computer and uh, it said, uh, you know, there was a C prompt and I typed in the magic words, you know, word process and it gave me a screen and I started typing. And the next thing I realized, I didn't have to write anymore. And my secretary was was confused. I, I usually gave her um a draft of the weekly sermon on Wednesday. I'd write it on Tuesday. And on uh, a yellow
1: pad or something like that? On on a half
3: uh a half sheet of paper, uh, an eight and a half by eleven torn in half. And uh and then I take some rubber cement and glue about twenty pages together so that I could fold them over and have a backside right. to every page. And okay. I would Right, and then if I wanted to move a paragraph I'd circle the paragraph and put an arrow to where I wanted it to, to, to go um, and uh, and she could figure all this out and she would type it triple spaced and I'd edit that and she'd type it double spaced and I'd preach what was it.
1: your most controversial sermon
3: well I gave a sermon on Israel every year and uh, uh and and uh, uh, essentially I would say the sermons were not the same because they always had a different pretext uh, but essentially they would say um, there is no two state solution it's impossible uh, and there is no peace with the Palestinians until they decide they're not going to teach hatred uh, you can't have peace with people who want to kill you and, and uh, my uh, the hardest sermon I ever wrote was on after the Oslo Accords, in, in which uh, essentially uh, I, I excoriated Rabin for, for, for uh, giving in to Clinton. Uh, I thought it was a terrible mistake. And as it turned out, I was absolutely correct. It was a disaster. Uh, led to the Second Intifada, and Jews were killed in during Passover, during this time of year. Killed, killed in while celebrating the Passover Seder at hotels. Um, young boys and girls, 16, 17 year olds, were blown up in a dance hall uh, by Palestinian terrorists. And uh, you know, y- you you can't make peace with those people. Uh, it doesn't happen. So until Abbas is gone, until Hamas is gone, the Brotherhood is gone, there there can't be. A peace accord, and for sure, uh, one thing that the Ukrainians must learn from this is what the Israel's the Israelis really now realize: you can't give up country for peace, you can't give up territory for peace, because there's no end to the territory that they the opposition wants.
1: And you can't give in to the haters. And they can call you the Nazis, but they're the Nazis. And uh, the Palestinians can say, Israel's consumed by hate, but you have it right in your charter that you want to destroy not just Israel, but the Jewish people, right?
3: right? And one has to ask the question, so tell me, Iran, how many Jews serve in your parliament? Uh, We got 12 Arabs Muslims serving in the Israeli Knesset. Mm -hmm. Um, Jordan, how many Jews do you have sitting in your military? We have Muslims sitting in high positions in the Israeli military. Um, Palestinians, how many Jews do you have teaching in your universities, which Israel supports? Uh, We have many Muslim scholars who are teaching in Israeli um, universities. And you could go down the list with every one of these countries. Right. And there
1: have been some good peace accords, even some done on Trump's watch. And Absolutely. Had, what do we do with that? The when Abraham- people say, hey, Trump was good for Israel. He and was. What are you doing? Why don't you get on board? What do you say?
3: I'd say that Trump was a good friend of uh, of Israel because that's what the extreme right wing wanted. Uh, and, but let us not be sucked into thinking that just because they were great in one particular aspect, that they were great for the Jewish people in every other aspect. And just like Biden, Biden and Obama were terrible for Israel uh, because they just don't understand the Arab mind. They have no clue as to how the Arab mind works. And this trying to revisit the nuclear accord with Iran is, is stupid it's it's not just foolish it's stupid because
1: right. and that's kind of what got me thinking that Trump might be okay in 2016 because he was so against the Iran nuke deal so was I so was the whole Denver rabbinical society you rarely see people get together like that so
3: so was I but I wasn't for Trump
1: See, that shows how you're a little so, smarter and a little wiser. So the
3: moral of the story is you, you live in America and you have to know what's good for America first because this is our country. And if we if we corrupt this country, it can't be good for anybody. And if you believe in the values of the country, that is the basic goodness of the people of this country, then you have to understand that the The badness will be overcome somehow, but you have to keep voting for what you think is the best.
1: There you go. And we're not far from playing your speech. You used the word badness. What's the opposite? Well, we know what that is, and we're going to get to that. My dad was the best guy. And... We would get a visit before Passover from Rabbi Wasserman. I think he's he's still alive. I hope
3: so. His son, huh? son. His son is.
1: Anyway, Rabbi Wasserman would come around from uh, the Orthodox, the, you know, the, the Talmud Torah, and he would sell us some matzah for an extraordinary price, which my dad gladly paid. And I said, Dad, we're not... Fermies, we're not Orthodox, why do you support them? And he said, who's going to keep the Jewish people alive? You? I was like, well, it was a challenge to me, but he, he you tell me. what will we'll, we'll keep the Jewish people alive. Will uh, it be more accomplished by the people at Temple Sinai or the people who keep the faith, you know, more piously or... Frown on intermarriage more. When I grew up, it was about Israel, it was about Soviet Jewry, and it was about intermarriage. We don't want intermarriage, and yet in this world right now, if you can find love anywhere, you're lucky. You tell me, you're the rabbi.
3: Takes both kinds. It takes the it takes the the it takes those who are practicing, and it takes those who are thinking. <laughs> and those who are choosing, those who are changing. Uh, because without change, Judaism, like any other religion, becomes sterile. Everything has to change. And when change can be done without revolution, that's good change. And, and, uh, uh, and people are adaptive. I mean, look how long it took us to get used to having a phone in our pocket. About an hour, um, right? When I was growing up. Uh, I would look for a payphone in order to make a phone call. Right? My parents, when I was a kid, my parents would say, uh, "Okay, but call us at ten o'clock if you're going to be out any later than that." Well, nine forty-five, I was frantic looking for a payphone, and you know, and then a nickel or a dime or whatever it was, and I'd call them at eleven o'clock and tell them where I was or ten o'clock, and here I am, and I'll be home when I get home. Okay, no problem, we're fine. Now. Everybody's got a phone. You don't look for a payphone, right? It's a totally different ballgame. And when I was growing up, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have easy access to it. And now, would you leave home without your phone no, in your pocket? No,
1: but, but uh, Your Honor, I direct the witness to answer the question. Isn't it a bit of a threat if everybody leaves synagogue observance behind that don't even celebrate passover they marry out of the faith they have kids and then it, can the jewish people disappear is is that a worry no it will never happen
3: no judaism and the jewish people are eternal and and uh, uh and uh practice and uh fundamentalism and uh, all of the rest of the things and liberalism, uh, all of that, all of that changes with each generation. Uh, the the extremely orthodox become more liberal, the very liberal become more traditional. It nothing is stagnant, nothing is stable, and throughout history, I mean, I'm teaching an OLLI course now called conflicts in Jewish education in Jewish history. And, and these conflicts have been going on since the beginning of time. You know the prophets and the priests, uh, they were different sides of the Jewish equation. The priests wanted you to worship and the prophets wanted you to do right. And that was a tension. Uh, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees said you can't live without a temple. And the Pharisee says, "You don't need a temple to live as a Jew." And the temple is destroyed. And the Pharisees continue to grow and and build a, a, a Judaism for the next generations, um, Karaites and Rabbinites, and and total uh, disconnect between the two. Ultimately, they all come together, find their own way. Mystics and traditionalists and legalists, and the, it, it just keeps moving and changing and undulating, and And what happens is it grows stronger in time. It always works out well. So I never worry about the future of the Jewish people.
1: And is Hashem in charge of that, Uh, making all that happen?
3: I I don't think he's got another job. (laughs) I think that's all God does all day is worry about the Jewish
1: people. (laughs) That's something else. What a world. Everything old is new again. You are 85 years young. And thank you for letting us follow this up with your epic speech on the occasion of your 85th birthday. And uh, I'd ask you the question, one of the last questions I got to ask my dad, who passed away slowly, my mom, unfortunately, fast. But my dad, I said, who was your favorite football player? You know, Red Grange, I think he said. Stan Musial for baseball. By the way, my sister was a little deeper. Dad, do you believe in heaven? And I get that a lot as a Jew, but I'm not a rabbi. You are. And here you are, 85 and above. Is Do Jews believe in heaven? heaven do you? Heaven,
3: heaven, heaven is a metaphor. It's it's a projection for what can be. Um, is it an actual place? I never believe that. Uh, do people go to heaven when they die? No, I, that's not. It's not rational. Um, so therefore, heaven is a is a virtual reality. It's an aspirational ideal. Uh, it's if you live well, you make your own heaven for yourself. I've never known anyone who was a real rotten person who really enjoyed life. Ultimately, I don't think they enjoy what they do. I don't enjoy. I don't think they enjoy who they are. And so, I th- I think you make your own heaven by by doing good, by being well, by doing by doing well, um, by helping others, um, by uh, lending a hand, by standing up for good causes. Um so I think that is that's how you make your heaven.
1: Well you made this a heavenly podcast, if I can go that far. Plus it's a perfect intro to your epic speech that you probably wrote that in one draft too. Right? I wrote
3: I wrote it in one draft, but I didn't write it in one hour. It took me a little longer than that.
1: It is brilliant. So are you, Rabbi Swan. Can I thank you enough? And I when you turn ninety will you come back? Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed your first podcast.
3: I did, very much. Thank you, Chris.
1: Happy Pesach. And a happy Pesach to you and all your listeners. Thank you. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you?
4: I have two dogs right now as well.
1: And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that.
4: So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you if you were to pass away, you know, who's gonna take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well.
1: I like working with you, and I think you are ahead of your time you have 15 different locations. How cool is that?
4: It is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them.
1: And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them?
4: Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to.
1: Tell us how people can get in touch with you.
4: My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on, this, on the website.
1: All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims, as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims
2: troubadour. Hi, Craig. Good yontev. Good yontev. Happy Pesach. Chag Sameach.
1: We've never had a show segment start quite like this. It is a hotbed of activity as we get ready for Passover, wouldn't
2: you say? Yes, it was a hotbed until you came over and interrupted the works. We had to record before Shabbat, Passover, it's everything.
1: And uh, I'm sorry to bring you away, although we are in a competition. Second night, the brisket bake-off. You do your best. My wife, Trish, will make her trisket, and we will taste each other's wares this second night.
2: But, you know, that has one of those – this is one of those things where I'm not going to – it's a no-win situation for me, Craig, and I'll explain why. Because if my trisket is inferior to Trish's, my trisket then I'm going to feel bad, right? I'm going to feel outdone. But if Trish, but if mine wins, okay? Yes. Through some objective determination. Right. Then I'm going to feel bad for Trish. It's a no-win situation.
1: Well, isn't that true anytime you play tennis or one-on-one? Or gamble. Ping pong? gamble with yes. friends. Which is why I don't. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, can we still... Taste your brisket. We'll we'll still
2: do it. And you can't
1: call yours Trishkin. That's just for Trish.
2: But you got me saying Trishkin. Well, that's so delicious. You've tasted it before. Good luck to you, sir. All right.
1: right. Zetzebek. Have you ever heard that word, Zetzebek? You've said it. What does it mean? Do you remember? I forgot. It's Yiddish for sit down. I heard that a lot. A lot. And I don't care if you have overcooked your roasted egg right now. How long have you had that baby in there, and on what temperature?
2: You're holding me back. It's 400, and it's exploded by now.
1: <laughs> you know what? Those toaster ovens aren't that expensive. Don't worry about it. We're going to talk about your song. How about that? It's so perfect for Passover, and you you actually sat down and listened to Rabbi Swerin give that 85th birthday
2: speech. Beautiful speech, yes.
1: And so it's simple, elegant, Thought, wise, thoughtful. just like the interview, you are sitting right where he said yesterday, are you
2: worthy? In 20 years, I'll be worthy, hopefully.
1: That's right. But he has the energy that makes you think 85 is not that bad, plus the wisdom, my goodness. And I do mean goodness, because your song, Good to Believe, we're going to play Rabbi Zwearen's amazing speech afterwards. So we don't want to give away the goodness there. But if I keep saying good Passover, it kind of honors my mother who would say good Shabbos, good Passover. I love that sort of thing. And it is a good Passover because you are entertaining tonight. So are we. Both of our two children, we don't share children, but you have two, I have two. They're away, but Others take their place.
2: And right? my younger one, Rachel, is with my father tonight. Oh, that's beautiful. There. Yes. Yeah. That I've talked to them
1: is, see, that's how you keep it going. But have you thought about good to believe? Uh, the word good, if you take away an O, what do you have? You have God.
2: You've thought about that? I've, at some point in the past, I probably haven't. And, and if you take away the G and replace it with the D, it's Gog.
1: Oh boy! <laughs> and if you're dog like and you're a dog lover, you worship canines. Why not? But Passover, your song is about something bigger than you. First of all, I'm still bigger than you.
2: The origins of this song were, I remember, I remember very, very, uh, very clearly, and it was Rachel something had happened, a terrible event had happened, a, a, an airliner had gone down, something like that. Innocent people had lost their lives. And she told me at that point, she goes, Dad, I just can't believe in God because he wouldn't let these things happen. And I thought about it. She goes, I think I'm an agnostic. And I and I didn't argue with her. I let her have her thoughts about that. And um, But it gave rise to this song where I thought this would be a way of imparting to her why I believe in God, why I, why I like to, and in, in some sense, need to believe in God.
1: Now, that is touching. And this song is obviously written for your children. It's wise. I would let my children hear it. It's good for your friends like me to hear as well, because you make the case sort of like a lawyer, and your daughter, who evaluates things for a living, she needs evidence. She wants something she can touch. Right, right. And you are saying, and wait till you hear Rabbi Ray Warren talk about these concepts, like Exodus.
2: Did Moses really exist? Absolutely, I believe Moses existed. Yes, but where? Where is your evidence? There, there's uh, what would you call it? Circumstantial evidence. It's come down. Tell me the, the ages. circumstantial
1: well, evidence. Jews Just,
2: are people of the book. It's been written, and it's been passed on. So. I mean, we don't know what he looked like. We don't know if he parted the Red Sea, all of that. There's a lot of allegory. But Moses, as the leader of the the Exodus out of Egypt, I believe.
1: What if I told you there is not substantial circumstantial evidence and that really it might just be a story, a good story, a metaphor? I'm not saying that's true. God, forgive me. I've always believed that Moses was a historical character and it's not just a Jewish thing because that's what Jesus believed. That's where the book comes from, the whole basis for Christianity, Islam,
2: Mormon. When would this have been, Craig? So the the Exodus would have taken place, what, like maybe thirty five hundred years ago? It like fifteen hundred you know, years uh, before let uh, uh,
1: listen to something uh, I asked Rabbis Warren about it.
2: So I need to brush up on my history. It's all right, it's,
1: though. But yes. even if it's not historically provable, yes, this is where your song comes in, which is, one, okay. One,
2: sh- one must have faith. That's why. That's no,
1: why. it's just good to believe in something. Yes. Mm-hmm. Unless you believe a little too fundamentally. Fundamentalism can get you in trouble. But gosh, it's a pretty song. Did you ever think about being a cantor?
2: No, I don't have the voice for
4: it.
1: I think you do. My God, I'll be singing my ass up tonight. My house, my service, and I know I can't carry a tune, although I think I could have sung back up on this song of yours at the end. Do you remember?
2: I'm one of the few who – I may be one of the few who likes your singing voice. You keep saying it's a a bad singing voice. No, I I disagree.
1: Do you remember the end of your song here when you're talking about Bigger Than You? And then in the background, aren't there singers going –
2: my, uh, my Daughters. Yes. I think you
1: could have called me I, over. I, I could have... Uh, we would okay, have had you... Get right. Coach
2: me. I mean, I need some direction. As soon as I'm done recording, we'll get you in uh, there. All right.
1: I, I just want to do it. I mean, if it's one note, I can maybe luck out and hit it and sustain it for just too, on the back end of the long. song. I don't want to ruin your song because it's, it's so beautiful. It's for your children, for anybody's children... And it's blessing to compete against you this Passover on the brisket thing. I mean it's really Trish against you and I know who's gonna win, but good luck.
2: Who's the judge?
1: Are you saying I can't be objective?
2: I am saying you cannot yeah, be impartial. Yeah, like
1: Clarence Thomas gets to judge Jenny Thomas's cases.
2: Right away, you're being a lawyer,
1: (laughs) but yeah, he sets the standard. Uh,
2: All right, all right. Well, you can judge. All right, but you'd be making a mistake to judge. To to, okay, here's the judge. You know, it's your wife. No, no. Here's somebody
1: who's we both adore, and we trust his judgment. And his name is Bradley Stern, and he's part of our podcast. Okay, and he's going to be. The deciding vote.
2: He's in the hot seat. I thought you were coming
1: gonna... to Passover second day. Now what's this crap that you don't do second day to Seder? You are coming, and you have to have at least four
2: cups of wine. That I can handle.
1: All right. Happy Passover,
2: Troubadour. To you too, Craig. Thank you. Ain't nobody out there who even cares No kind soul to do your reckoning Or answer your prayers Only the echo of indifference てる
1: Daily, a friend a lawyer a sponsor tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life
4: so by setting up your estate plan you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die you know where it's going to go you know who's going to get it we've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible, but then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael?
4: Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care.
1: There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
4: Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720 394 6887. And again, that's 720 394 6887. Or you can go online to Michael Bailey Law com, And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine.
1: Thanks, Michael.
4: feel like starting by
3: singing feels like old times. <laughs> Five years ago, um, Rabbi Rines invited me to uh, speak about being 80 and what it meant to me. And uh, now he's invited me back to speak this evening about what it means to be 85. And I, I want to thank you, my friend, for um, hanging in,
2: <laughs> first of all.
3: <laughs> and, uh, I really welcome this opportunity to, uh, to speak and I, as always, appreciate your kindness to me and to our family. In two days I will be 85 years of age. While it does seem odd to me, it doesn't seem old to me. My sense is that age is just a yardstick in the game of life. For some the field is short and for others long and for a few, even longer. For some, the field is lush grass, well kept. For others, it's pitted, rocky, and tenuous. And the certainty in all of it is that no one ever knows just how long their field will be. Therefore, age is just an accounting of what yard line one has reached on his or her field of life. That is to say, age is irrelevant actually. It is only relevant (laughs) actuarially. Most difficult thing about being invited to speak this evening is the startling realization that five years have really passed since I turned 80. The math is correct, but the psychology is all off. I could swear that 80 was just the other day. Time has lost its perspective, or as Einstein might have put it, its measure of relativity. The question that plagued me, that's a word especially in vogue these days, was should I speak about these past five years and how they have seemingly changed the moral, psychological, social, political, and historical culture of our country and of our world?
4: Well, I wrestled
3: with that and pondered it deeply and thoroughly, and I considered that possibility for well over 10 seconds. (laughs) And then I decided to leave it to the pundits of newspapers and magazines and CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and ESPN. (laughs) I spent another second or so debating as to whether to speak about Israel, but Israel is doing just fine so far this year without my help. You know that when there are more Arab nations that woo and befriend Israel than they do Iran, it's probably safe to save that sermon for another day. So that leaves me with the quandary, what to say? Well, when one is old enough, why not start with nostalgia? Carson Elementary School in Cincinnati, Ohio. My third grade teacher was Mrs. Overstreet. It was about this time of year, 1944. You already know I'm 85, you don't have to do the math. <laughs> For almost two months, our class had daily spelling tests and penmanship exercises, and she decided to put them both together by asking us to write an essay, perhaps the first essay I was ever asked to write. The topic? What do you want to be when you grow up? i have been asked that question a number of times before by grandparents, uncles, aunts, older cousins and the like, but this was the first time I was asked to put it in writing. Yet, even though I was only about eight at the time, I somehow sensed that the query was looking for the wrong answer. What did I want to be? assumed that a job or a career was the answer. But what did I know about jobs and careers when I was eight years old? I knew the cop who walked around our neighborhood. I knew the fireman at the station around the corner. I knew my teachers, of course, my dad who sold insurance, the local grocer, the soda jerk at the the corner Woolworths. Those are the workers I was familiar with, and I didn't want to have any of their jobs. Yet the question stayed with me, what did I want it to be? But it morphed, it changed significantly over time, and that in turn informed and changed me. I had no doubt that sooner or later I'd figure out a career path or a calling, but how would I figure out a value system? What did I want to be when I grew up became not what did I want to do, what kind of a person did I want to become? Now many of you know that my Sephardic grandmother, my mother's mother, played an important role in my early upbringing. She and Grandpa, whom I called Pops, don't ask me why, had the upstairs apartment in our duplex. It was to their apartment that I returned from school every weekday, staying with them until my parents came home from work. Grandma saw to it that I ate the requisite two homemade biscochos covered with sesame seeds and had a glass of milk while I told her in detail about my school day. During some of those sessions, she played umpire as I pitched. Well, Grandma, I remember telling her one day, we were shooting marbles under the big tree in the school playground and Johnny Verone took Jaime Cook's favorite shooter and said it was his and Jaime started to cry mío. It's a sin, she would say. It's a sin to cheat in a game or in life. A cheater always thinks he's getting away with something, but in fact he is making himself less of a person in everyone else's eyes and also in his eyes too. Besides, if he has to cheat or steal to get what he wants, he will never become a res- responsible or a strong person. What kind of life is that to be incapable of succeeding on your own? Nuestro Señor es grande. The Sephardim of Cincinnati always referred to God as Nuestro Señor, our great Mr. El Dio. El Dio did not put us here to cheat, she would say. We're here to do what is right and good to the best of our ability. Remember, Adam and Chava were kicked out of the garden for cheating. So what Johnny did could not find favor in the Ojos, in the eyes that are always aware of our heart and of our deeds. Somehow Grandma always seemed to be able to tie a moral to a biblical story or vice versa. And for her, good deeds were divinely blessed and bad acts were picado, sins. Carl Menninger, who along with his father Charles, founded the famous Menninger Psychiatric Clinic in Topeka, wrote a book back in the 70s entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? In which he maintained that when we lost our inclination to call bad acts sins, we lost our moral compass. My grandmother would have had much to discuss with Dr. Menninger. So I was thinking of what I wanted to be when I grew up as I began to write the sermon. And Grandma's Torah nudged me as I noshed nonchalantly, not on a biscocho, but on one of the oatmeal cookies that Ricky had just taken from the oven. This Shabbat is the fourth and the last in the month of November. The four Torah cedras of this month contain four ideas concerning what, or rather how, we should want to be when we grow up. So let me share those four things with you and then you can decide what you want to be when you grow up. This year, the first week in November, we read the sedra Toldot, Genesis 25 to 28. It begins with an account of the birth of the boys born to Isaac and Rivka, twins who struggled fiercely in her womb. Some of the rabbis who comment about this uterine warfare maintain that it was a moral struggle between the Yetzer ra and the Yetzer tov the two inclinations that each person possesses, one to do bad and the other to do good. As Esau and Jacob wrestled before birth and then struggled with each other for decades afterwards, so Jewish tradition would teach that bad and good struggle within each of us until one conquers the other. A story. The chief and his grandson were walking along the mesa. There are two wolves that live within us, the grandfather says. One wolf is evil envious, often crazed, and very dangerous. The other wolf is fair, generous, gracious, kind, and good, and they grow at one another and test their strength within us against one another each and every day. That seems terrible, grandfather, the youngster said. How do we know which one will control us? That my son is easy to answer, the grandfather replied, the one you feed. In a Mishnah, Ben Azai said it very simply mitzvah go-reret, mitzvah avira, gorarit, avira. Good acts beget good habits, bad deeds beget wickedness. The lesson we become what we practice to become. The moral do good for good's sake, because it will make you good. The Sedra on the second Shabbat of this month is called Vayetze, Genesis 28 to 32. This was my Torah portion some 72 years ago. I read it in Ashkenazic Hebrew because that was the Hebrew pronunciation of Mr. Lapidus, who taught it to me. He was a very short, slim man with a long beard. He was probably in his 50s. I thought him to be old enough to have arrived with the pilgrims. (laughs) The bar mitzvah ceremony was held in the minuscule chapel of the Vista Del Mar Orphanage in Los Angeles. That was the Friday night rental of our new congregation in Culver City. There were eight rows in the chapel. The pulpit hovered uncomfortably five feet above the first row. I was five feet tall, maybe. I could see no one over the top of the pulpit, and no one could see me. It was perfect. (laughs) A quick summary of the Sedra. Jacob has received a spiritual blessing from his blind father, and when Esau finds out that Jacob has... uh, It has, as it were, taken the blessing meant for him, he vows to kill him. The sedra then begins with Jacob on the run from his brother, and it ends four chapters later with Jacob running from his father-in-law. It begins with a stone that Jacob places under his head as a pillow while he dreams of a ladder reaching into heaven. And it ends with a pile of stones that Jacob builds as a sign of a pact with Laban that they will not cross beyond this stone mound, in Hebrew this Gal-ed, in English this Gilead, this Golan Heights, to harm one another. So at the beginning Jacob flees to his mother's brother, to the land of his uncle Laban, where at the well he meets cousin Rachel and wants to marry her. Seven years of labor he gives his uncle, but Laban then tricks the one who tricked his father and substitutes the eldest daughter, Leah, on the wedding night. And shortly thereafter, we find that Jacob has married both of the sisters, Leah and Rachel, and he's also married the handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah. And Leah bears six sons and a daughter, Dina, and the handmaids bear two sons each, and Rachel finally gives birth to Joseph and is pregnant with Benjamin. Jacob succeeds beyond Laban's wildest dreams. The flocks and herds increase beyond reason, but after 20 years Jacob wants out and he makes a deal for his share of the animals. Everything seems set, yet knowing his uncle for the rogue he is, Jacob waits an opportunity, folds his tents, takes his flocks and his burgeoning family, and is once again on the run. Laban is furious. He did not get to say goodbye to his daughters and besides, the family idol is missing. He runs after Jacob and catches up after three days. The Sedra is all about the dynamics of duplicity. Jacob tricks his brother Esau, Rifka tricks husband Isaac, Laban tricks nephew Jacob, and so does wife Leah. The Midrash is especially poignant on this account. Jacob is angry. He's angry with Laban, of course. I worked for you for seven years, and after that, you deceive me by giving me Leah instead of Rachel? To which Laban replies coolly, in this place, we marry off the eldest before the youngest. To that, Jacob has no argument. So he turns on Leah. He blames her for being complicit in tricking him. On our wedding night, when I called you Rachel, you said, here I am. How could you pretend to be who you weren't? To which she responds, you should talk. When your blind father called you Esau, why did you respond, here I am, pretending to be who you weren't? A story. A friend met the elderly, greatly revered, Rabbi Zusiah walking by the way. They stopped to chat. Talk of family turned to health and then to deeper matters. The friend in all seriousness finally asked, "Reb when your time comes to stand before the Holy One of blessing, are you not afraid that God will ask, why were you not as great as Moses? To which Zusia replies, no, my friend, what concerns me is that God will ask, why were you not the best, the most zusia you could be? The lesson, we should try to be our best, most authentic self, regardless of conditions or circumstances. Pretense will lead to pretense. Life is complex enough. Why make it more so? Don't do what you're not adept at doing. Don't pretend to be who you are not. In Hamlet, Shakespeare put these words in the mouth of Polonius, This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as night the day. Thou canst not then be false to anyone. Cedra 3 is called Vaishlach chapters 32 to 36 of Genesis. Jacob and his family have left Laban and succeeded or proceeded back to the land of Jacob's birth. He hears that Esau is on his way to meet him with 400 riders, and Jacob is greatly afraid. And that night he leaves his family and crosses over the river Yabok, and there he wrestles with someone or something. He's wounded in the thigh but is also blessed. His name is changed to Israel meaning one who wrestles with God and man and prevails. He devises a plan. He sends 550 animals in manageable groups led by his men as gifts to his twin brother. He divides his camp, putting the handmaidens and their children in front, Leah and hers in the middle, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And as he prays, Esau arrives and runs to meet him, they embrace and kiss, but Torah puts dots above the letters on the word kiss, as if to say it was the kiss of appeasement. Esau is surprised and impressed with the size of Jacob's entourage and professes to not want or need all the animals, but Jacob insists and then tells Esau, so go back to his land and Jacob will travel slowly long. 20 years have passed since the men have seen one another and yet here they are together and and the meeting is so brief it barely exists in Torah. They do not ask about their lives. They do not inquire about their history of the last 20 years. They don't ask how the parents are doing. Nothing. Jacob has gained nothing from the event. Esau has been enriched. Appeasement has been costly. Well, Chamberlain taught us that at Munich. Stephen S. Weiss taught us that with FDR. Bibi taught us that with Hebron, Jericho, and Bethlehem. And now again, appeasement seems a possibility with Iran. Appeasement is worse than war. Because it is costly at first and ultimately leads to nothing positive. An empty kiss at best. A story. Donkey tells the tiger, the grass is blue. Tiger replies, no, it's not. The grass is green. Donkey says, grass is blue. Grass is blue. Grass is blue. Donkey. You don't know what you're talking about. The grass is green. I say the grass is blue. And they go at it with each other, insisting back and forth. And the discussion turns into a heated argument. And before it becomes a fight, the two decide to submit the issue to arbitration. They go to see the lion. And as they approach the lion who is seated on his throne, the donkey starts shouting, Your Highness, isn't it true that the grass is blue? The lion replies, You believe the grass is blue? Absolutely, great lion, king of the jungle, oh, your highness, your majesty, your noble one. And the tiger disagrees with me, contradicts me, annoys me, please punish him. The king then declares the tiger will be punished with three days of silence. The donkey jumps with joy and goes on his way, content in repeating, The grass is blue. The grass is blue. The grass is blue. See, it's as I said. The grass is blue. The tiger, befuddled, asks the lion, Your Majesty, why do you punish me? After all, the grass is not blue. It's green. To which the lion replies, You know that the grass is green. You've known that to be an undeniable fact. You've known that and every reasonable being knows that the grass is green. Is that not so? Yes, the tiger says, though quite perplexed. So why do you punish me? To which the lion replies, has nothing to do with whether the grass is blue or green. The punishment is because, first of all, you came and bothered me with that question just to validate something you already knew was true. And secondly, It is degrading for an intelligent creature like you to waste your time and mine arguing with an ass. (laughs) The biggest waste of time is arguing with the fool and fanatic who doesn't care about truth or reality, but only the victory of his beliefs and illusions never waste time on discussions that make no sense. There are people who, for all the evidence presented to them, do not have the ability or desire to understand. Others, blinded by ego, hatred, or resentment, only want one thing, and that is to be right, even when they aren't. The lesson, Jacob bought a cold peace with his brother. Then he knew enough not to accept Esau's invitation to live nearby. You can't appease those who are set on a course, no matter how foolish or harmful it may be. Don't allow your sense of compassion to let others whose thoughts and values you don't share send you down social, cultural, political, mental, or religious paths you see as blind alleys. The Torah says it simply and clearly in one verse, lo te acharei rabim l'ra'ot, do not follow others to do evil or to act foolishly. And finally we come to this week's Sedra, Vayeshev, Genesis 37 to 40, <clears throat> to set the scene Oh, that was it. Okay. To set the scene. To set the scene. It is of note. The three people died in last week, Cedra. Deborah, the nursemaid, <clears throat> the nursemaid midwife of Rachel, and she is buried under a pine tree that weeps. That, of course, sets the stage for the tragic death of Rachel while giving birth to Benjamin. And she is buried in Ephrat, which is in Bethlehem. And lastly, Isaac, who is blind, had blessed his twin sons at least 20 years earlier. He dies being 180 and is buried in the cave of his ancestors, Machpelah, in Hebron. The patriarchs and matriarchs now take a backstage as the next generation takes center stage. Joseph is 17. He will dominate 13 of the last 14 chapters of Genesis. It could be argued that the Joseph story is the greatest short story ever written. It is interwoven throughout with love and hate, boasting and envy. Dreams and more dreams, betrayal and redemption, pathos and humor and irony abounds. There are recurring symbols that move the story along. Joseph goes from one coat to another, from one pit to another, from one place to another. There are silver coins and a silver cup, sacks with money and sacks with food, and specific food items that all play a symbolic role, as do caravans and wagons and famine and feasts, along with hidden identity and revealed identity, and all of it written by the hand of a master storyteller who would today be up for a Penn Malamud Award or an O. Henry Award for excellence in short story writing. Joseph's life is a roller coaster ride From the moment daddy gives him a special striped coat, thrown by his brothers into a pit, he's sold to a caravan, taken to Egypt, made chief of a household, thrown into another pit, a prison, falsely accused by another's lie, and then brought out of prison to interpret dreams, made vizier to Pharaoh. Joseph then leads all of Egypt through a famine. Pushes his brothers through tests of loyalty to one another until finally, in one of the great lines of Torah, reveals himself. Yosef, I am Joseph. Does our father yet live? All of Genesis begins with Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? And it now ends with Joseph's certain answer, yes indeed. And then, it is the Patriarch Jacob who brings the entire clan to Egypt so as to spend the last 17 years of his life with the son who was sold there at the age of 17. All of the emotions that can destroy people and families are in the story. So too are those virtues that redeem. Courage overcomes defeat. Generosity overcomes envy. Love overcomes vengeance. Faith overcomes disappointment. The roller coaster creeps upward and then races down. It takes a curve left and soars again, only to spin as if out of control, down, screamingly down, until perhaps it levels out and everyone grows up. A story. Nathan is the personal advisor and prophet to King David. He has no reticence whatsoever, no qualms, no fears in telling the king what he thinks, even to the extent of calling him out for a grievous moral sin. The world lies at David's feet. His power is far-reaching and awesome. When one day a visiting monarch coming to pay his respects and tribute to the king brings him a beautiful gold ring as a gift. David loves the ring. He wears it every day. Once as he and Nathan were talking, David asked his advisor to do something special. Have words engraved on it, he says, that will keep me on an even keel. Words that will remind me not to overdo things, not to despair of failure, and not to become smug and haughty over success. Nathan took the ring and returned it in a few days. with. Three Hebrew words engraved beautifully onto its surface, words for the king to look upon each and every day. The words were, Gamzeh Avor." this too shall pass. Whether sad or happy, this too shall pass. Whether pleased or disappointed, Gamzeh Avor. Whether sick or well, young or old, yes, this too shall pass. The lesson, tempest Fugit. Time flies and as Ricky likes to say, like a roll of toilet, like a roll of paper towels. (laughs) The closer to the end, The faster it goes. So what do I want to be when I grow up? What might we all want our children and our grandchildren and for some our great-grandchildren to be when they grow up? My answer? I want to be a person who has always tried to do good and never knowingly bad. Someone who has tried to be the most authentic person I can be, never fooling myself into thinking I'm something or someone else. Someone who can discern fact from fiction and can decidedly walk away from potential battles with those who simply will not discuss disagreements nor accept facts. There's always help for those who are limited, but there is no cure for stubborn stupidity. And finally, on this day, the thirty-fifth anniversary of the death of our dear daughter and sister Robin, the words on David's ring were never more poignant. This too shall pass. All of life is a roller coaster. To survive the ride, no matter one's age, one needs the balance of perspective that no matter the condition or the circumstance, this, too, shall pass. In retrospect, I could have answered Mrs. Overstreet's essay What Do I Want To Be When I Grow Up with Just One Word. I knew how to spell it, and I could write it very well at age eight. And that word is Good. What a much more pleasant place this would be if everyone could and would choose to write just that essay. May we all be blessed in such a way as to live each day, regardless of where our yard marker finds us, on our own personal field of life, with values that ennoble and perspective that keeps us on a true. A good and steady course. Amen.
1: Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor, or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, A Voice for Victims. Hey there. Hey. Is this Jeff Cass, private investigator?
5: Is this Craig Silverman, counselor extraordinaire?
1: It is. It's great of you to be on my podcast. Thanks for doing this.
5: Well, thanks as always
1: for having me on. Well, it's just that time of year. First of all, it's Passover. Happy Passover. Do you recall when you came to the Singing Silverman Seder? Not only
5: do I recall it, but my daughter recalls it when I told her I was doing your podcast. She was there, too.
1: Yes. And I hope it's a blessed memory. Yes. Sure. Good. Good. You got to teach this stuff to your children. You know that, don't you? Yeah. Yep. How's that going, Dad?
5: Uh, I think pretty good. She got into DSA, Denver School of the Arts, which is very hard to get into for middle school.
1: Now you're bragging, and you're doing it on (laughs) my podcast, which is more than appropriate. Really, podcasts are all about bragging, and I want to brag on my friendship with you because I think, first of all, don't you have some ability to act, right? I bet you were in school plays, stuff like that, right?
5: No, no, I, I was not actually. It was more journalism.
1: Don't you think you could play a role if you had to for money? Because you look just like the most famous guy in the world. Uh
5: Volodymyr Zelensky.
1: Yes, I'm not the first one to tell you that, right? Do you look Somebody good? At, do you look good in a green T-shirt?
5: You know, I haven't modeled one recently, but maybe I should do that.
1: Anyway, it's a handsome, it's a great reference. Zelensky is a Jewish role model. It's hard for, you know, as normal Jewish guys to live up to him, let alone look like him the way you do. Way to go. So I hope you tell your daughter I said that, and I I hope she'll be proud. Okay. Yeah, I will. Do you have anything before we launch on Columbine? Because we have to, because this is the anniversary. It comes around every year. We shan't forget this event that really rocked the world. I looked it up back in 1999. Passover was early that year. It had concluded. Was it involved in your book? You wrote the book on Columbine.
5: Well, um, Dylan Klebold, You are correct. It it occurred before the shootings that year because it has been noted that Dylan Klebold celebrated Passover with his parents that year before the shootings. And uh, now they said he seemed normal. Nothing seemed amiss. And I don't... What was it, a few days uh, later, he committed the shootings. After apparently normally participating... In the Passover Seder, yeah, I, think I mean, it was he... super
1: early because it was uh, over by April eighth. This year it starts April fifteenth, so it was uh, twelve days before Columbine, right? Yeah, that—that's the end of it. So, but the first Seder would have been at the end of March, so quite a while ahead, March thirty-first. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's a shanda that Jews are associated with this, that, the other thing, but we're associated with everything. We can't run away from it, but let's hear about your upbringing before we launch into your story. Tell everybody where you grew up.
5: I grew up in Los Angeles, California. That's, uh, you know, where I went to high school and just, I hope, you know.
1: What part of LA? Born it's a pretty big place.
5: West Los Angeles.
1: I've heard of that. So,
5: yeah, you know, Westwood. Um,
1: UCLA I to area. University.
5: I went, that's, yeah, I went to University High School, which is pretty close to UCLA. I always remember, actually, the the veteran, they have a big veterans hospital by my high school. And I volunteered to, uh, I did a psychology internship there when I was in high school at the VA hospital.
1: That had to be a pretty great place to grow up. At least I idealized it that way. It seems crowded now, but you're pretty young, so maybe it was crowded when you grew up.
5: I mean, it was crowded as heck, you know. Um, But, you know, I, I have, especially in light of Columbine and, you know, writing about Columbine and researching what makes school shooters tick, I have... Very fond memories of my high school in the sense of it was a public school in L.A. And it was a very good public high school, which is hard to find in Los Angeles. But it was very racially and economically diverse, which I think is such a great and unusual thing. Um, And that lack of diversity, really economically and racially, I think is a contributor to school shootings.
1: At Columbine, you think that there was, articulate that more. You're saying it wouldn't have happened at your high school because it was diverse, but Columbine was different?
5: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it is what I'm saying. um, Because I feel that when you are an outcast, and it's not just Columbine, it's many school shootings in in my research, but um, I think when you are an outcast, such as the Columbine killers were, um, you there, there's not a lot of places for you to go to form a circle of friends or to find, you know, meaning, find a good clique to be in, to find acceptance. And I, I also would say, actually, in Los Angeles, even if you were to go to a very, sort of narrow school where there's not a lot of diversity. Um, when you go to school and live in a city like LA, you can find a group of friends outside of school, right? There's all sorts of different places to go and hang out where you can find some friendship and meaning. And that's hard in the suburbs and, and hard at a place like Columbine High School. And I, I don't mean to criticize the school necessarily that's just the way it is. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think it's a contributor.
1: What I like about your book and the position you've taken about Columbine since it happened, and you were a Rocky Mountain News reporter, one of the first people on the scene, and you dug into it and you came out with some conclusions, just like you're spouting off now that uh, these killers are usually out for revenge, that a lot of misportrayals of Dylan being bullied are out there. And then you get pissed off, and I'm putting words in your mouth, and and then I'm going to let you talk. You can take them out of your mouth. But it pisses you off that some other reporters seem to have an agenda and created a false narrative that dominates to this day about a very important topic and one of the most consequential crimes in American history. Did I get it right?
5: You are absolutely right, although I would like to make one correction. Um, I do feel Dylan was bullied, and I feel Eric was too. Um, and, And not only in the traditional sense of, you know, the stories of, like ketchup being thrown at them, paper clips being like shot at them with rubber bands. But in the sense of uh, they were like put down, you know, in a general sense, like people didn't want to hang out with them. They were excluded. Um, That would be a very broad definition of the term bullying, but I feel they were, you know, excluded, not necessarily in a physical sense, but just like psychologically you know, from the mainstream, people didn't want to hang out with them. People looked down upon them and they knew that or, or, or they felt it. Right. Even if you can say, hey, you know, people really didn't hate them that much. I didn't know why they were so angry. They felt that was the case. That was their reality is that they were on the bottom rung of the social ladder.
1: It's fascinating because your interview runs side-by-side side with Ray Swerin, a brilliant rabbi who talked about all wars are born of bigotry and greed. And this was like a war, what Klebold and Harris did at Columbine. And I'm trying to think, were they bigoted, were they greedy, or were they just mentally ill? And uh, as I think about Putin's war, all of that, what do you think about all of that? Were weren't they kind of bigoted? Didn't they consider themselves superior? And didn't they time this out on Hitler's birthday? And didn't they? weren't they down with the Nazis to the utter shame of Dylan Klebold, his ancestry, Harris too. Do I have all this you, right?
5: Let let me let me add some nuances there. So um, Eric did talk about admiring the Nazis, um, you know, sort of um, in a perverted sense, you know, sort of in like Heil Hitler, you know, those Nazis were really great, but also in a a more sort of secretive sense or hidden sense, because he would, I think there's a school essay he wrote about the Nazis and sort of tried to make it newspaperish and neutral, like, hey, these were the Nazis, they weren't great, but this is what they did. But I think the reason he did that essay, for example, is, you know, underneath that, he had a real admiration for them. Um, I don't recall that Dylan, you know, praised the Nazis in any of his writings or anything. And there's actually um, in the uh, basement tapes, there's a scene. I have not seen them, but, you know, I've, I've read. They, they sealed them after showing them mm-hmm. for a bit. But um I've read that in the basement tapes are actually around Passover. Um, you know, Dylan said something about going to Passover, or being Jewish. And so this is, you know, right before the shootings. And there's this recognition from Eric, like, wait, you're Jewish? Like, it, which is just bizarre on so many levels. Like, here's his best friend he's about to commit mass murder with. And like, he hadn't realized he was Jewish, you know, or, or part Jewish. Um, so I don't think the Nazi warship came from Dylan. Um, it was more Eric. But, uh, yeah, there, there was a sense of superiority, and, and that feeds into the whole imbalance of them being at the bottom rung of the social ladder. Because when you feel you're smarter than other people, yet your recognition Um, is so low, people look down upon you so much. There's like a bigger gap there between the way you see yourself and the way people treat you, which fuels their anger. And it was revenge. I think if I could boil it down to one word, it would be revenge.
1: Right. And sometimes, as a former prosecutor of murderers galore, I said a surprising percentage of people who kill other people are angry about something at the time. You know, that's what motivates most murders, extreme anger. Revenge is a, a different sort of concept, but anger is part of it. Um, Just, uh, it's surreal that so much time has passed. Let's connect the dots. You were moving along on what was a fine career as a reporter until that industry went sideways. You've been on your feet as great private investigator for way over a decade now. So um, give it a shout out for your current company and put it in your own words, uh, your career as a journalist before the rug got pulled out from everybody.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, you know, I could say I saw it coming, but really I experienced it. The Rocky Mountain News, which, um, you know, it was, the oldest continuous business, not only in the state of Colorado, but before Colorado was a state, when it was a territory, it survived the Great Depression, two world wars, and, uh, but it couldn't survive, you know, the 2008 recession and the aftermath. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't need to, like, see the writing on the wall. I lived it, that the journalism industry was having trouble.
1: At least you so, got to experience a little of the greatness of it, right? I mean, you oh, can't yeah. curse the fact that, damn, it all went away, but at least you got the last taste.
5: Yeah, yeah, that that's one way to look at it. And no, I have no regrets, yeah, I'm very happy I got to uh, do all that and, you know, cover stories like Columbine. You know, I, I wish it hadn't happened, but, you know, I'm glad I was able to be there and investigate what I feel is one of the most important social issues of our time still, sadly enough. I mean, we have the um, Bronx subway shooting this week. And, you know, before we got Brooklyn, on the phone. Brooklyn. Yeah. Sorry. Right? Uh,
1: it's all right. I, I, you know, we're reporters, but I can help <laughs> edit your work. Go ahead.
5: Yeah, well, you know, it's the other side of the country. Bronx, right. Brooklyn, but... Um,
1: it could have been so, Staten Island. What the hell?
5: Right. Um, but I was Googling it a bit before our conversation uh-huh. because I wanted to see... And I hadn't read it, you know, in any of the, the papers yet, but I wanted to see if this suspect, Frank James, had been influenced by Columbine. And I haven't come across that yet, but... Um, you know, to bring Columbine back to this week's current events, I do, I, I would make the argument that I don't have the evidence right now, but I would make the argument that these incidents, um, you know, occurring across the country, the a man who is com- completely opposite the, the racial and economic profile to some degree of the Columbine shooters, I feel they influenced him. If it wasn't for Columbine, the Brooklyn subway shooting would not have occurred. I, again, I don't have the evidence at hand to back that up, but I do feel that Columbine sadly planted the seed for events like this.
1: For mass shootings, mass publicity, mass notoriety, we're talking about that dude right now, and thank God nobody got killed, and you wrote about it beautifully in my favorite news outlet, the Colorado Sun, this time last year. We had the Boulder shooting, and you said, hey, we don't know much about that guy, which is true. Um, And I can't even recall his name, but I wouldn't say it anyway. But you said there were lessons there, and you extrapolated again that it's fair to say the guy was doing it for revenge for some reason, right? But again, it might come back to what I was talking about, mental illness,
5: yeah, well, you know, there, there is that component. And, you know, we were talking about that. You brought it up in terms of Columbine. I mean, Eric Harris was clinically diagnosed. He was on psychiatric meds. Um, so, you know, assuming his psychologist diagnosed him properly, which I suppose some people might argue about, um, you know, he was under the care of a licensed professional for psychological issues and on medication.
1: And wasn't Um, Dylan uh, depressed as well? That's
5: the conventional wisdom, yes. Um, But he wasn't under the care of a professional Mm -hmm. or on psychiatric meds, which is not to say he could have benefited from those things, but it just hadn't, you know, his parents or he hadn't, you know, pushed for that to happen. It just hadn't happened with him, but... Eric Harris's parents had flagged
1: it, you know. Given that depression is part of it for a lot of these shooters, they get suicidal, which is kind of one tick away from homicide, right? It's kind of suicide with vengeance and uh, that sort of thing in mind. It gets really dangerous when people start realizing that their own life doesn't mean much. Klebold and Harris... Did they understand they were going to die in the end? Didn't they have an escape plan?
5: Yeah, I, I don't think you can definitively say they had planned the ending out as a suicide or anything else. They had a few different scenarios. Now, interestingly enough, to bring things back to New York, et cetera, et cetera, one of the things they had written about was after the shooting, hijacking a plane and crashing it into New York, of, of all things, right? And so right. this is
1: 1999.
5: Yeah, a couple few years before 9-11. So um, they had another uh, thought of, like, going to Mexico or something and hiding out. I, I think it was Mexico or some Central American country. So I don't think they had fully planned out what what they were going to do um you know the suicide homicide yeah there there is actually overlap there another theory on why these masks just
1: just remind everybody of the theory some people think that the one killed the other and then turned the gun on himself expected unexpected remind me what your book concludes My book
5: concludes with the conventional wisdom, which is that they each killed themselves. Um, there is an idea and it's from Randy Brown, who I must say, I respect immensely and has not only lived through Columbine, given that his son knew the killers and that they tried to flag the killers and reported the killers to police many times before the shootings. And, uh, were mostly ignored. Um, Randy Brown knows more about Columbine than probably anybody ever will. Um, Even me, I must say. But uh, Randy Brown believes that Eric killed Dylan and then killed himself. I have not read the part of Randy's um, very good book, actually, um, on that part yet. But he, he has a really heartfelt emotional book about living through Columbine and and what happened there, but let me say this about suicide and mass shooters. Um, the point I was trying to get to is there is the idea that these guys want to control the ending themselves. Eric and Dylan didn't really, I don't recall how much they talked about suicide before the shootings in their diaries and their um, videotapes, but I think when the moment came, one possibility is that they didn't want to get caught by the cops. They wanted to control their own destiny. And that's why they took their own lives in the end.
1: If they would have been taken alive, one was 18, one was 17, one was eligible for the death penalty, one would not have been. What a situation that would have been. And it all would have fallen in the lap of Dave Thomas, who is DA and JEPCO, who had worked with me in the Denver DA's office back in the day. I knew Dave. I know Dave. And then you had uh, Sheriff John Stone. And that's where I love your book. And it's better than the other books. And we may get back to that. But I just can't help but think about all the disinformation, misinformation these are words we hear all the time, but back then it was pretty startling to be getting this from the government. Tell everybody about that. Well,
5: if you're talking about how they denied getting tips about Eric and Dylan before the shootings, um, you know, and they had gotten to the point where they drew up a draft affidavit for a search warrant for Eric Harris's home. Before the shootings, and one of the detectives, I think it was a detective or officer, he canvassed the neighborhood and was asking neighbors about Eric. Um, they never brought that draft to a judge to formalize it into a real, a regular search warrant, an official search warrant. But um, and, you know that all came out, but they denied it for years.
1: Right, because when this happened, everybody's saying, "Well, who is Eric Harris? Who is Dylan Klebold?" And uh, the answers were within the files of the DA's office and the sheriff's department, but they acted like, "Well, we don't, we didn't know who are they," and it took a long time for that to come out. Am I right? Yeah, you
5: are. And you know, let me add to mention Randy Brown again. Randy, most of those complaints came from Randy Brown. And you remember, what the sheriffs did is they accused his... They, number one, they said the Browns were not telling the truth. And they accused his son of knowing about the plot. And, you know, and not possibly, you know, essentially participating or being, a, being an accomplice in the, the shootings. And these were the people who had been trying to warn police about the killers. And instead, they got the tables turned on them, suit, we assume because the police didn't want to acknowledge that they hadn't fully investigated the killers, despite the numerous tips they had before the shooting.
1: I'm kind of into podcasts, and I heard one called The Daily Stoic, and it says, instead of obsessing about, oh, I don't know, Donald Trump, go back and read about Richard Nixon or whatever. So I'm thinking that instead of obsessing about the latest shooting, I think it would be good for me to go back and reread your book. What year did you publish that?
5: 2009. So it came out right before the 10-year anniversary of the shooting. And I would agree with you. I think that's a great idea because I think the book's theories about what makes school shooters and mass shooters tick still holds. And I think it will also cut through a lot of the misinformation, like you said, that is out still out there.
1: Well that's what bothers me because there were certain narratives that got firmly established and the early point of view is the one that sometimes gets a megaphone and you can't break through and you are working diligently on a book and a guy named Dave Cullen. I've never met the guy, really haven't thought about him much, but he wrote a book called Columbine, and it was sort of like your book, except the facts were different. And <laughs> I don't know, right? It, it, what happened there?
5: I think he misread. Well, I, he actually came out later, from what I understand, in one of his subsequent editions, and said he he, he made a mistake. He misread the the narratives. I, one of them is, uh, for example, you know, we've been talking about how low on the, the rung of the social ladder the kids were. So Cullen's book talks about what how popular Eric was and how many girlfriends he had. And it was based on one single police report from somebody who it it, it seems clear to everyone except Dave Cullen, somebody who faked a relation who told police after the shootings She had had a a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship with Eric. She was an older woman. He met her at the mall. Um, The report appeared to clearly be fake. Like the police asked her, well, you know, uh, did anybody else see you together sort of thing? No. Did he have any tattoos on his body? I don't know. Uh, You know, these sorts of things that like made clear she had never really met him yet. You know, so they put her interview in the police files. Like, okay, we interviewed this woman. It clearly appears to be a fake uh, account of what happened. But Cullen took it for real and ran with it. And it's just, uh, it's a, it's a horrible thing.
1: And that's the kind yeah. of a salacious fact that gets magnified. And pretty yeah. soon, you've got a false narrative going. And it's a darn shame when it comes to murder that anything gets misreported or uh intentionally disreported like John Stone. I mean that guy uh he was the republican sheriff out there and his actions just were shameful, weren't they? Well,
5: he was part of the cover up or you know or you know there's there's some Evidence, too. He, he actually wasn't part of the cover-up. Other people in the department covered it up, but they didn't even let him in on it. So he was, he was like so clueless, he didn't even know what was going on. It was the, the other people who were, you know, discussing how to keep information out of the public eye that they had.
1: I'm so old that I was already kind of doing a lot of national television, thanks to Sean Benet, that investigation. You and I probably interacted over that or all the stuff that was going on in Colorado, but the bottom line is I was at DPD HQ when Columbine happened, and a lot of the cops there got the alert. Some Some of them had kids who were students there. They rushed out. I started getting calls from people... I think it was CNBC at the time, Geraldo's show, and I was on his show that night describing what happened as if I really knew much about Columbine. Nobody knew that night, but I knew where it was and how shocked our community was. We were in the middle of big debates about guns then, and the gun rights crowd was kind of ascendant, but after that, they had to pull back, That's what I remember about Columbine. You were working at the Rocky Mountain News. What was that day like for you?
5: Well, um, so interestingly, that day I was not scheduled to work at the Rocky. And, you know, when I wasn't at the Rocky, I was doing a lot of freelancing for East Coast newspapers, mostly um, New York Newsday, Christian Science Monitor, Boston Globe, U.S. News and World Report. And I remember uh, being at home, and I started getting these calls from all those papers. The first call was from the deputy national editor at the Boston Globe, in fact. And he said, yeah, I think a kid got shot in the leg at a Columbine High School. You know, nobody knew, like you said, nobody knew what Columbine was but, mm-hmm. you know, at a Columbine High School. You know, We don't need you to go there now, um, but you might, we might want you to go there you know, and check it out. But okay. So I flipped on the local news, and it was like, boom, like wall-to-wall coverage. Like, I could tell it was huge. So I I think I called him back, and I said, I'm going. You know, this is big. And in the course of, like, figuring out where the heck Columbine High School was, because I was in Denver. um,
1: And you're from L.A.?
5: (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, I, I've been in Denver for a little for a few months, but actually not that long. But, um, you know, I was getting calls from all the other publications I work for. And they're like, can you cover this? Can you cover this? And I just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just said yes to everybody.
1: <laughs> and so, I had it so out op, there. up you go, yeah.
5: And I think um, I had my byline was on the front pages of both. The Boston Globe and New York Newsday the following days after Columbine.
1: What was your lead?
5: Like, uh, it, you know, I think it was a very straightforward lead at that point. That you know, um, I think they had corrected that it was fifteen dead and not the initial twenty five they mm-hmm. thought by the day of the next page. So it was probably a you know very straightforward lead of you know. Um, 15 were killed. Uh, I believe we have the killers' names by that point. Um, but you know, it would take years to sort out the sort of other basic questions that we were talking about before. What did police know, and when did they know it? You know, could they have done anything to stop these kids for the shooting? Um, you know, what were their family lives like? What were there, you know, stuff started coming out even those first days that they were sort of outcast. So um, we had that. But, you know, the full picture would take years. I mean, that's why I stayed on my book for 10 years because it took that long.
1: Right. And a lot of litigation had to play out. And here's a little thought about aspect of Columbine, unless you are Jeff Cass. A little bit of Black Lives Matter was involved. And it wasn't all just white people. Tell everybody about that. It was a big part of your book.
5: Right. Well, one of the few black students at the school was Isaiah Scholes. And he happened to be in the library that day, which is where most of the kids who were killed were killed, and uh, including Isaiah. And his parents, Michael and Vonda, Scholes, were the, I believe, if I recall correctly, they filed the first civil lawsuit in the shootings, and I believe it was against the sheriff's department. The, the other big civil lawsuits were against the killer's parents, um, and maybe against the sheriff's department and the school district, and, you know, they were black, and they were the first to file the lawsuits, or one of the first, but they were followed by many other parents of both, you know, kids who were killed and kids who were injured. But the Shoals felt that they were labeled as the most opportunistic because of their lawsuits. And, you know, they were labeled as money-grubbing and this and that. And they feel that's because they were Black. And um, they left the state. That's why they say they left the state. I mean, they've been away for a long time, but shortly after Columbine, I don't know, a year after, maybe a couple of years after, they moved back to uh, their home state of Texas, at least Michael's home state, I believe. Um, you know, they, they felt they were pushed out by racism.
1: And they had and, that... And, yeah, they had that. did they feel like Klebold and Harrods were racist for shooting their son?
5: They do. Um, I think I might disagree with that. Well, it... I. I think, you know, um, Isaiah, not I think, Isaiah was called the N-word before he was killed. Um,
1: by who? It,
5: that's a good question. I don't believe, One of the I don't killers. Recall. Yeah.
1: And, and that was recounted um, by one of the survivors? Correct. Okay.
5: Correct. Um, you know, I think they did target him once they came across him in the library, but I I don't know that they were out to get him from the beginning. Michaels has talked about you know, um, you know that they always wanted to get Isaiah. I think they had plans to get him, but from what I recall, it's it's more you know they, they did target him probably once they felt, came across him in the library because he was black. Um, you know, I don't know that they would have searched for him otherwise if they hadn't come across him in the. Library.
1: Yeah, damn those guys. They acted like, uh, you know, who shall live, who shall die. Just horrible, the power that they assumed and the big weaponry they had set a hallmark. And uh, I, I encourage everybody to get your book. How do, how do people get it?
5: You can get it on Amazon. Um, you know, Columbine, A True Crime Story. It's available there
1: and it's a it's a wonderful book. You went to so much effort to write it in retrospect. Was it worth it?
5: yeah it, it, it was I, I feel it's um one of the greatest accomplishments of my life, actually, and I have no regrets about spending ten years on it. and uh you know, like a lot of people who who write books probably, you have to understand like I turned down work, I turned down full-time jobs to write that book. Um, so I, I really sacrificed a lot to dedicate my time to that.
1: And now you're a father. Have you thought about that? What's the right age for a kid to read your book? Your kid.
5: Not yet. (laughs) Not, Not fifth grade yet. I don't think, um, which is my daughter's current grade. Um, it's I I can't say right now. May, maybe seventh grade,
1: mm-hmm. maybe.
5: Mm-hmm. So she she's eleven. I I don't see I don't see it right now. I think it's too young.
1: Just being a parent, that's kind of different. You can now envision your daughter at high school. You know, maybe with a bunch of artists. Can you let your mind go there? I remember I would talk about Jean Bonnet this or even during Columbine, but I, I guess during Columbine I just had Ben and I was a new father, but it kind of changes your perspective, right?
5: It's Yeah. I mean, it, it can happen to you, right? I mean, really, with, with the way mass shootings are these days, it can happen to all of us, but um, it's ingrained and you know, since she's been in at least elementary school, I don't know if they did it in, like, um, daycare before she went to kindergarten, but, you know, school safety drills are part of life now. And, it, you know, it's not a fire drill anymore. It's, you know, whether or not they say the word school shooting, um, it's a safety drill. Now, I mean, they prepare for a school shooting, and that's just the way it is.
1: And Columbine is at the heart of it. Why is it? And why is it important in your mind that we talk about it at least once a year on or around April 20th?
5: Well, you never want to forget the victims, but you never want to forget the lessons learned. And I think they still have something to teach us, sadly enough, because mass shootings have become more popular since Columbine. And I you also, I mean, it just touches on so many things, but you know, like we've been talking about the myth making, the myths that pop up, the misinformation, you need to learn to cut through
1: that and, so, and understand how. Yeah. No, I'm saying so much of the modern problems do go back to Columbine and that's the thesis of your own book, because it wasn't just another shooting. I heard it just this week. Somebody was talking about it. I think maybe at the White House as they talked about ghost guns and gun control. And my God, that debate, I've been part of that for a long time, Jeff Cass. Do you see any progress on that? Are we making progress? What are the lessons of Columbine? If we were really, if we had our shit together as a society, what would we be doing?
5: You know, I think the, the key thing I would say, you know, that we learned from Columbine, and it actually has continued to be learned, if that's good grammar, throughout the following mass, the subsequent mass shootings, is most of these killers, and I think the percentage might be around 85, 90%, they have some sort of warning signs for red flags, right? Um, you know, including like this guy in Brooklyn, right? is His extremist, mm-hmm. yeah, that stuff. But, you know, most of these shooters exhibit some sort of warning sign. And, you know, I will say too, it's not every time that you report these warning signs and something gets done, such as Randy Brown and his wife and, and Columbine. But I think that is the best solution is to recognize the warning signs and report people. You know, I, I don't, you know, want to advocate a society of informants, but, um, I think if you flag somebody as being extremely violent, you know, that's one of the things. And, you know, it's not just like, Oh, Hey, you know, screw this guy, or I hate that guy, or even I'm going to kill that guy. Um, But, you know, common sense things like if somebody repeatedly says, talks about killing or hurting somebody, for example, and if they start saying specifics like, I'm going to kill that guy after school in the alley when nobody's looking, the more specificity, the more frequently you hear somebody talking about those sorts of things, those are the red flags that should cause you to report somebody. And that's the best way to, to stop a mass shooting.
1: And there is a red flag law, and it's named after Zach Parrish Third, who lost his life to a mentally ill former lawyer licensed out of the University of Wyoming School of Law. Remember that? And I had his wife on, Grace. She was so wonderful. Loved her. Two little girls. She spoke so beautifully at the funeral, and then Zach Parrish's father. And back then, I had George Brockler with me, and I had Sheriff Spurlock, and we tried to get it out of committee, but some right-wing nuts the same people who got involved in nominating, uh, what, Joe Altman for governor? Wasn't it the, the Neville, Patrick Neville? Anyway, I depart a little bit, but... Finally, we got that red flag law through, no thanks to uh, Brockler who abandoned it. But that law is working. You know what I mean? So your solution a good one. And we haven't heard about abuses of uh, constitutional rights and lives have been saved. And yeah, there are red flags and we should be able to act on it. And I'm glad I advocated for that and I'm glad you brought that up. Red flag laws are a good thing. Remember, even Donald Trump said that after Parkland until he bowed down to the NRA and God knows who, Putin. But, <laughs> am I going yeah, too I far?
5: No, I do recall him coming out. I, I think he talked about taking guns away from people.
1: without um, Before they go to court. He said that yeah. specifically.
5: Yeah, and it was just like everybody was sort of floored that Donald Trump would say that. And then, yes, he, he took it back or, you know, uh, never followed up on it. But right. I, I do think, um, and, and I'm not even saying you have to take guns away. I mean, that may be a consequence of, of, you know, reporting somebody. If they get arrested, I guess they wouldn't necessarily have their guns on them. But, I mean, saying this person is making eerily specific and frequent threat about killing or harming people. It seems like he will follow through on it, you know? Um, and that's, you know, it, that in a way it's nothing new, right? Because there's always an attempted murder or a conspiracy charge, you know, as a former DA, right? I mean, there's always a point where as a DA, you say, this guy has gotten too specific in right. his planning. He's cro- he hasn't done anything, uh, but he's well, We
1: the line. need a substantial step for an attempt over to act for a conspiracy. But I get your drift. It's called inchoate crimes. And if the cops do a good job, they can stop a crime and save people from getting hurt. That's what it's all about. And uh, it's so cool to hear you talk with such passion about your book. And you are a story of resilience because. Brag on your private investigation firm. You work for all the best law firms in town, including mine. So tell everybody what you do.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, I've translated my investigative journalist skills into the realm of private investigation. So it doesn't mean, you know, like um, surveillance, you know, sitting outside someone's home. Although there, you know, that, that there is a time and place for that. Um, it doesn't mean checking for cheating spouses, but it does mean frequently um, interviewing people, interviewing hard to find people, people who might not want to talk to anyone else. It means digging up documents on people, backgrounding people, going, you know, far back into their lives or digging up all manner of items. And, um, you know, those are skills that yeah, I, I learned as a journalist and now I trans private investigation.
1: All right. As long as you as long as you have enough food to put on the table for your daughter on Passover. Please promise me that.
5: I uh, Yes, I do. Thank you.
1: Because my wife said that our oven isn't working right, that I've invited too many people already, but uh, know that we remember you guys too. And give our best to your wife, your daughter, everybody. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast.
4: I
5: really appreciate being on whenever I can. It's good to be here.
1: All right. Happy Passover. And uh, let's remember the poor victims of Columbine. They were some beautiful people. So many people hurt. This country hurt. And uh, read Jeff's book. It's got a lot of lessons in there. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words, appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Hey, that's quite a show. Thank you, Jeff Cass. What a great friend. What an asset to have a private investigator on your side like Jeff Cass. Dave Gunders, wow. Going side by side with you on this podcast is fantastic. Again this week, and I look forward to the brisket taste-off. Rabbi Zwerin, so great to get to know you and to have your first podcast be with me. We made a record of how we felt in April 2022. Anybody can listen anytime they want. Thank you for listening. Tell a friend. Please subscribe. Good ratings are appreciated. Thank you. Happy Passover.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.